I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Batman, the animated series. This is a very special, long-awaited episode. How do you do a podcast on dozens of hours of the most beloved version of the most prolific on-screen superhero? The answer, for us at least, was not to attempt to start doing a show. Instead, this emerged organically after we started an episode-a-day rewatch of the entire DC animated universe. Uh, We started this back in 2020 when there was bugger all else to do. So uh, we began with On Leather Wings, and uh, the plan is to end on the epilogue for Justice League Unlimited. I think we're going to stack uh, Batman Beyond at the end, because chronologically, of course, it takes place in the future. At present, we have just reached the rarely discussed Superman, the animated series, and we decided, having completed Batman, that we could put together a show with the right focus point. So effectively, it emerged... Spur of the moment. Yeah, it it was more of a, you know what, we've put in all this effort, let's use it, you know? Uh, Joining us are Toby Jungius of Through the Window... I am the terror that flaps in the night. (laughs) Who has been watching along with us. And from our Discord, Kevin Vahey. Hello, everybody. The timeline goes thus. In 1989, Tim Burton's Batman movie takes the world by storm, reintroducing the superhero blockbuster after the Salkins ran Superman into the ground throughout the 80s. Literally, there was only only a two-year gap between the rock-bottom trash that was Golan Globus's quest for peace and Burton offering up Gotham, and a dramatic focus on Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne, and Jack Nicholson's Joker. Then there was huge dollars for Warner Brothers, all kinds of golden age detective hero movies like Dick Tracy and The Shadow and The Rocketeer and The Phantom got greenlit as a result. They weren't thinking, everyone loves Batman. They were thinking, hey, all the kids love golden age comic detectives, yes. (laughs) Yeah, like I used to read in the funny papers behind Old Man Wiggleby's Switch Shop. And... In September 1992, more than a year of sequentially airing slices of Batman the Animated Series for its first 65-episode season ran, culminating in September 93. And these first 65 represent some of the greatest superhero TV ever put together, certainly the cream of that particular decade, when held up against its contemporaries. We watched... um, it's a really good documentary is on one of the later bonus discs on the Blu-ray set, which I heartily recommend everyone get. It's like an hour and 38 minutes. It's very frank. It's very uh, introspective. And all of these, uh, you know, this this team sort of come back decades on and sort of think about 
when they were flying high and when they were doing this. I think it was described that every piece of this particular puzzle just fell into place and was exactly what it needed to be. That doesn't mean it's flawless. There's problems with it, especially as we go on. A year after that first season, 20 more episodes ran from September 94 till May 95. And that's the second season, which had more of a focus on Robin, as Batman Forever was released in the summer of 95. After that, the team were on Superman, but would return around the second season of that show to produce the new Batman Adventures, which ran from September 97 to January 99, at which point they moved on to Batman Beyond. Now, New Batman Adventures is effectively a third season of the animated series, with all the same voice actors coming back for it, and it constitutes 24 episodes. Now, because Superman had changed things up, and these would air alongside the second and third season of his show, they, they kind of made it like a, a Superman and Batman Adventures hour for, for the kids on Saturday mornings. Uh, this also involved an animation overhaul for Batman and his family in his rogues gallery, as well as a change in tone and writing style, and we will be talking about that later. It is noteworthy, by the way, that we picked our favourite 12 from the first two seasons, and then we watched season three, and not one of those episodes, even Mad Love, replaced any on this list. I'd, I'd rather use that as indicative and reflective of how good that first season was, rather than damning the third season. Because it seems like the lion's share of the episodes that the four of us have picked three each from hail from, like I said, the the, uh, the initial run. Uh, and that should keep us mostly in that era and should actually kind of keep our conversation fairly uh, focused. Or we can, of course, invoke others. And our aim is to get a nice range of the various characters as we go, specifically honing in on those that were either first appearances like Harley and for... And Montoya was uh, creative for this, wasn't she? And for many folks, the definitive versions like Joker and Gordon and Alfred and even Batman himself. And to be able to lay claim to any of those, considering their many, many screen incarnations, is a magnificent feat in itself. We can also talk about the incredible team who, as I said, put the show together. And we're going to start with Heart of Ice. There is a reason why this one won loads of Emmys and kind of took people by surprise. And they even used it as the basis for Freeze in Batman and Robin when Akiva Goldsman realized he couldn't write a better uh, Mr. Freeze story. It also was the first where they experimented with the whole tragic villain template for reimagining some of the Batman villains. Yeah, that's why it's exemplary. That's why I'm, I'm starting with this one. So, so yeah, talk about Heart of Ice. How is Mr. Freeze different from how he appeared in, say, the Adam West TV show from the 60s? <laughs> For a start, the fact that they managed to move him from mostly being cold puns... And they moved him back for and the they movie. And moved him back for the film. Yeah, I was going to say, when you say they're like, they use this as the basis for the Batman and Robin film, I'm like, the story maybe, but the character yeah. seems to be in a, di a yeah, distinct no, he's, backswing. Arnie's definitely doing the uh, 60s version. Although, I mean, in a way, he's still kind of cracking those ice puns, so to speak, but he's saying it with such... With a voice that's totally yeah, devoid of emotion, it comes across as, well, it's chilling more than yeah. funny. I'm afraid my condition has left me cold to your pleas of mercy. Yeah. It's much more like that. Which obviously plays off the, yeah. the Terminator stereotype as well, the fact yeah. that he's... he's yeah. We're used to seeing him as a cold, robotic... Yeah, it, 
Um, and also, there's that metallic tang to how they processed uh, Michael and Sarah's voice. Yeah. That just it kind of gives you a shiver down the back, almost uh, at the risk of making a Doctor Who reference. It almost like how sometimes the Cybermen came across. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yes, yeah. yeah. And considering what kind of imagery uh, is being used for Mister Freeze, it's a testament to how well the performance in this was set up. That he doesn't feel silly and cartoonish he's got tubes mm-hmm. all over him he's got a, a shiny dome for a head um and yet you see past all of that to the the character that they create in the yeah. heart of it the word of the dome over the head i love the fact that it looks like there's frost on it mm-hmm. it's just it's so it's a testament to the animators that they were able to achieve that when i actually read watched the episode with commentary before we started the show and they said mm-hmm. that it was really scripted just to have that little line over the helmet thing like you see in a lot of old-timey cartoons mm-hmm. but the animation team went the extra mile to kind of give it that frost look to make mm-hmm. it more dimensional and yeah. i just i love that which is definitely an enhancement of the 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 kind of hand-drawn animation style because they had to use an airbrush to get that effect and that is really hard to do with animation because you cannot get every uh, panel exactly the same so you end up with this slightly shimmering effect on it which Mm. works perfectly for this image also for for movies it's a good idea if your antagonist and protagonist kind of have something personal about each other going on Uh, but for an ongoing TV show that just spans for a hundred or so episodes it, it made, made sense for most of the rogues gallery to kind of have beef with a third party or to 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 want something which was actually nothing to do with Batman and Batman mm-hmm. himself is more of an irritation when he shows up mm-hmm. as opposed to it's all about you and me yeah Batman. well also it makes mm. it makes Batman feel like more of a cop it makes him feel more like somebody who is there to be the face of justice generally mm. rather than mm. a specific the, you're my nemesis or uh, Shake's fist. We've always been each other's greatest nemesis. Exactly. <laughs> but because he has a foot in the tragic shadows that a lot of these villains occupy, mm. a lot of these episodes end, I remember someone on social media pointing this out, that a lot of these episodes will end with Batman from above just taking in the circumstances of each villain as mm. if he's there to witness their, like, their tragic loss in life because as much as he's there to bring them in there's a certain amount of overlap there that i think that there's an comes across mm. yeah watching uh, um this in lieu of how uh, mean batman has become in more recent years uh just seeing him be compassionate and and look out mm. for them and in many ways especially as it gets to the middle uh, period. It seems like he's much more pro rehabilitation of these guys. Well, there's rather. a reason why so many of his villains got. He he kind of he's edging them towards Arkham, not jail. Mm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because they want he wants them to heal psychologically and really function as well ordinary people. Yeah. You know. On some level, it, it uh, feels like if they can get better, then maybe everyone can get better, and maybe he can get better. Because ultimately, Batman is a, a sickness of sorts. It is a a response, an unhealthy one, uh, which has positive benefits for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that Heart of Ice is a haunting episode because the word that comes to mind for me, for Mr. Freeze, is, or this version of him, is static. He is frozen in that grief and that 
in in his own illness and there's a sadness that there's not really any way for him to get better mm. and so i think that that's something that maybe he can steer away from that batman can hope that there can be some sort of rehabilitation rather than staying in that place. Well, the tragedy of that carries forward into uh, the later episode with Mr. Freeze, where he's... This first one is all about him protecting and uh, saving his wife. And then the later episode is, it worked, she's saved. It doesn't matter. He hasn't changed because the circumstances that hurt him are still there. Yeah, the uh, we can talk about how he turn, turns up in the uh, new animated adventures. This made all, most of us grind our teeth because we were we'd been so praising the series up to that point, and then effectively after the movie uh, Mr. Batman and Mr. Freeze Sub Zero, which was almost like they'd watched Batman and Robin and gone, look, we'll do our own Mr. Freeze movie with blackjack, <laughs> with polar bears, yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah. it is, uh, you know, m- much more um, fun and funny to watch. Uh, but um, it, it's kind of average compared to, say, Mask of the Phantasm, which is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. But, mm. but, but it's still pretty. It's almost like just a very solid kind of almost feature length episode on yeah. its own merits. Really. Uh, it, yeah, it, it feels uh, like uh, it's it's much more in keeping with uh, Batman the Animated Series uh, than than trying to be cinematic in its own right. But it has an ending that effectively concludes Mr. Freeze's journey. So when they brought him back for um, uh, for the new animated adventures, he's kind of this head in a jar, walking around on a little spider body that climbs into a robot. That scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> I got why. Climbs into a robot body, and then he just sort of turns up at art galleries, smashes art, kicks over cakes, and goes, my life is crappy, now everyone's life must be crappy. And it's like... Whoa! Why? Why are you suddenly just a jerk? That's it does lead into uh, highlighting the tragedy character more in uh, Meltdown for Batman Beyond. But all oh, right, we, we haven't uh, got to that yet. But, but yeah, he does indeed re- yet, remain so. Futurama style, head in a jar. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, no, I've never watched that much Batman Beyond. I've caught dribs and drabs here and there, so that'll be a first for me. It because uh, it, I was. It's a great episode. You'll yeah. love it. Oh, cool. I, I suppose it's it's a, it's a good way of illustrating the difference between the early episodes where it just seemed to be um, the original idea with Mr. Freeze for that last shot when he's uh, had chicken soup smashed on his um, uh, uh, th- that dome of his and then is locked up in Arkham with like a, a beautiful snow globe of his wife who's still effectively in a coma and he cries. They were going to have his tears turn into little snowflakes and float away. And I thought, that's so lovely. But then they decided against it because it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Um, They actually had an adherence to trying to make everything to a degree, both grounded and stylized. It was a very careful balance. Mm. Yeah. 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 One thing, uh, one little correlation I really, I noticed like several years ago that I really like uh, between Batman the Animated Series and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the mm. fact that they bo- uh, they both at the time uh, like had humble beginnings, as it were, with heroes that don't have superpowers of their own. Mm. The MCU began with Iron Man. The DCAU began with this. Yeah, mm. that's true. And at the time when uh, the MCU started with Iron Man, he was by no means their Batman. He became their Batman. I failed you. 
I wish there were another way for me to say it. But I cannot. I can only beg your forgiveness and pray you hear me somehow. Some place. Some place where a warm hand waits for mine. So the next one is Two Face, and thinking uh, about it in comparison, this is this one's yours, Kevin, and this is a two-parter. Yeah, I picked this one because I just—it's like they made Two Face into a universal horror creature, yeah. for, played for tragedy, and I love it. It's uh, it's it's very effective, um, specifically for Harvey's story. They they kept him in the first few episodes of uh, season one, and there's a scenario where uh, Poison Ivy. Um, again puts him in a coma with her um uh lipstick so he feels like a a support character in the show so it would have meaning when he becomes two-face yeah like what they they they, they seem to be doing for billy d williams before that Mm. sadly never happened until lego batman movie yeah as they always intended kevin uh what your reasons for this one uh, well, I just the psychological aspects of it are really great. The casting of Richard Mull as Harvey Dent in Two Face. I've always mm. been a big fan of his as an actor, and especially since watching uh, this uh, the one series called Night Court from uh, what, on TV. I used to watch that when I was a kid, and he played a bailiff named uh, Bull, who was this tall, imposing figure, but he's very soft spoken and like yes, sir, you know, and stuff and polite, you know, and just. But and he uses kind of a similar, a similar kind of voice for that for Harvey. And then when he, he also plays villains, and when he goes to play villains, he does that same kind of growly voice he gives Two Face. So it's just he's he, it's like perfect casting where he has that duality of Harvey Dent and Two Face, and and also the fact that I also now look rewatching it for the show, especially in Blu-ray. I love the fact that it doesn't stigmatize his mental illness, yeah. and Bruce Wayne even doesn't do that, and I love that. Too. It just mm. it's it's to show kids that yeah this guy's kind of messed up in the head but he is actually trying to get help even before his transformation particularly in the second part because this is a two parter fittingly mm. uh, when hmm. Harvey's fiance Grace sees him like up close and personal after his transformation and he's been committing crimes and stuff you know you know he, it's 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 like a universal horror tragedy thing mm. you know? yeah she, like, he's on his knees in the corridor and he she can only see the human-ish side of his face and when he turns around you get the like lightning strikes behind the extremely stark illustrative view of his double features mm. and um, I think Bruce Tim mentioned that uh, they played it at a comic con and a girl started crying a fully grown woman started yeah. weeping for Harvey well, and his, uh, his um, lady uh-huh. Another detail I really like that I didn't notice until I rewatched it, but I, I, or maybe I noticed it when I was a kid and I totally forgot about. But there's a that it was that when he's in that therapy session, and the thunder crashes, you can briefly see a little flicker of what his yeah. face will become. I love that. Yeah, such one, a wonderful visual foreshadowing. One so of the things that I love about these episodes, uh, these two, is that the the total dedication that they have to the duality in the the imagery and the animation, um, and this is something that again I think they took forward to 
Batman and Batman Forever, where Harvey has like two versions of everything. So they had it's it's all played totally for silliness and laughs in that. But when he has the table set up and he's got two different meals and the two different yes, quail egg omelette and a side of raw donkey yeah. meat. But when you how hungry <laughs> is he? <laughs> Well, he's only going to eat half of each one, presumed. Um, but the way they have <laughs> this set up, like there'll there'll be um, places where he's got his office, and it's the the decoration is is different on either side of the room. Mm-hmm. But then it carries forward even to things like. Uh, if he moves into a position where he's not in a dual environment, the shadow will fall over mm-hmm. him so as to make both sides of the screen look very different. It is actually yeah. a chilling scene when the the shrink is talking to uh, uh, a softly spoken Harvey Dent, and then in the silhouette you can see his eyes suddenly lower, the eyelids lower, and he becomes cruel. Mm. And this mm. uh, part of him that uh, was suppressed for years comes out of him. It's mm. it's horrifying. And again, the, yeah. the fact that it, Harvey it, himself reflects uh, the uh, the dual nature of Batman, the the Bruce Wayne Batman dichotomy is reflected that much more starkly in Harvey who has to carry both sides of his personality around with him all the time. He doesn't get to put a costume on and take it off depending on who he wants to be that day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the duality is provided also at the, near the end of the first part where that Rupert Thorne is basically blackmailing and, and needling him and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you can just see his face suffused with fury and stuff. And then all of a sudden he's calm again and then you see hear him in the Harvey in Harvey Dent voice saying like like there's one problem and then he suddenly shifts to the two-faced voice going you're talking to the wrong Harvey and I'm like mm. I remember I remember actually tearing up a bit when I was a kid seeing that because mm. that scared the shit out of me. I mean, Harvey's I mean, face... a lot of this show scared the shit out of me as a kid, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's very compelling. I, I think you have a lot of memories of those kinds of media that scare you, but just drew you in. And the show oh, absolutely yes. had that in droves. And yeah. Harvey's face before the accident is so full of detail in the show before he becomes the design that you see him in, him in in the rest of the show. But what makes the it makes the shots where they focus on the twitching fluctuations on his facial animation full of so much movement. On the one hand, it risks feeling a bit excessive, like his whole face is made of rubber, but. On the other, I'd be. On the other hand, I'd be lying if I said I, it doesn't work as a means of making you feel uneasy and frightened for Harvey as he goes through all of this. Just the scene in this where Grace Harvey's fiance is pulling away the cloth from Harvey's deformed side of him and stuff, and it just it almost reminds me of the Sam Raimi movie Dark Man a little bit at the end when uh, you know Julie. Uh, Liam Neeson's character's mm. fiance is like, you know, like, I want to look, please let me look. And he's like, you, you know, it doesn't matter if you look like this. I still love you, you know, and all that. And I just, mm. it is, except this is a little more played for a little more, uh, more kid friendly audience. Mm. And Dark Man decidedly isn't. I, I have love a, both things, but still. I have a question for the table. Okay. Do you think that the episodic nature of this show, barring certain two parts like this, helps or hinders the show because the thing that comes to mind with this two-parter is that after this the character grace disappears from harvey's life and the rest of the series uh probably a mix of the two really in some cases it helps and in some cases it hinders it and Mm -hmm. 
I mean, and sometimes even within the two parts, you know, like where it's the, the first part of this two-faced story is kind of more dark and character driven. And then the, the second part is a little more kind of what we'd expect in a conventional Batman story, but it still works at least mm. for me. I mean, also then the two part, the second part, I you noticed that he's always hitting things with twos in it. And, uh, mm. I actually noticed this time around, uh, rewatching it, the lawyer's office that he hits to get that file on uh, Thorn. The lawyer's name is Doubleday. Ah. <laughs> That's a nice touch. I never noticed that before. To answer your question with a focus on the villains themselves, they are at their best, you would just assume this anyway, in episodes that are about them. Good. Now, Harvey, I would like to speak with your other personality. I would like to talk with Big Bad Harv. I don't think he wants to talk. He must if we're to help you. Please try. Big Bad Harv? Speaking. It appears you and Harvey are having trouble again. The guy's a wimp. Well, Harvey has special problems. When he was young, he felt very guilty about his angry feelings. So guilty that he hid them deep inside until they became an illness. You, Big Bad Harv, represent these angry feelings. Everyone feels anger, and it does no harm. As long as it doesn't result in bad behavior. Once Harvey understands this... Then maybe I'll go away. Right? Well... I'm going nowhere, Missy! If anyone's leaving, it's Mr. Goody-Good! And maybe you with him. Did I do this? Not you, but your other personality. It's stronger than I suspected. Two-Face is never more interesting than in Two-Face, which technically means he's, it's all downhill from here. They do give him more at the very, very end of the last episode of Batman the Animated Series, the animated, new animated adventures, where a third personality called The Judge turns up, and it turns out to be Harvey, and even he didn't know that he was The Judge. But it made me realise that up until, like, in between all of that time, Harvey is, by and large, just a really cruel gangster. Like, the... His thing with the coin is not played up enough to give him a quirk. Mm. It's like, if Two-Face is coming after you, oh shit. As opposed to, well, he might flip the coin to let him go. That makes him much more quirky well, and interesting, and very rarely do I see that done. Yeah. It's a, it could it's a, be that, like, oh, Two-Face is after me. Oh shit, that means he flipped the coin, and that means he won't stop until this is done. Yeah, like and a it's a case, Yeah, like, you, if... There might be half of the criminals of Gotham don't know that at one point Harvey flipped a coin and decided, okay, well, we'll leave mm. them. 
I mean, yeah, like, it's it, it, it's a it's like a weird compulsion he has. It's it's it's. Mm-hmm. I find that really fascinating about the character. But if you have the flip happen before the pursuit happens, then the tension of what's going to come out of the flip is dispensed with. So. I, I would really like to see writers, especially in future, sort of kind of hone in on the idea of Harvey as someone who actually is compelled to allow chaos to guide his actions towards mercy, as well as just being a brutal bastard. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I need to make him different from your average Tommy gun wielding villain, which he plays in an extremely efficiently, but not in a way that plays up his quirky habit, if that makes sense. What? Batman has exploited his coin more times than he hasn't, mm. but it rarely mm. calls, comes in to guide his actions. One advantage that I think the episodic nature of the show has is that it plays into what I said to you the other day about Batman is not really... I mean, I referred to him earlier as a cop. He's not really a cop. He's not even really a detective. He's a forensic psychologist. And having these episodes where he focuses on a different villain every time makes it feel a bit like psychology sessions mm. so he gets he gets his total focus to each individual person each time but that will still only give him a, a, a 50 minute or in this case you know 25 minute snapshot of how that person thinks and how they behave and so there is kind of an inevitability then about them having to come back later mm. in order to fill out that story a bit more i think the psych angle is why he's got a rogues gallery that's more interesting than any other yeah Absolutely, because it's not Single just a case hero. of, well, how big a bomb does the bad guy have this mm. week? Well, in Spider-Man, it's, it seems almost like they totemically dress up as different kinds of animal, and so many of them were created in lab accidents, <laughs> much like him. Um, but- so Spider-Man is a zookeeper. Kind of. Um, <laughs> well, unless you're Craven the Hunter, but you know. But but yeah, the, uh, the 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 Batman scenario is I'm someone whom Gotham has driven kind of insane. Yeah. And so everyone he goes up against is is someone going through that as well. Well, he yeah, he's the positive end of the scale mm. of I've been messed up by what's happening here. I want to do use that to improve things, and then he is responsible for everybody else on that scale who's lower down than him. Regarding you calling him a cop. We saw um, The Dark Knight Rises again last year, in uh, disconnected from the uh, first two of Nolan's films, and the massively pro-cop side of it. Like, you know, the, these are the knights of uh, Gotham, and they get suckered into being trapped underground, and then they come out and they fight all those rotten, bad prisoners from Blackgate. That doesn't fly now, that the whole masks-off side of um, yeah, Blue Lives Matter has reared a very fucking ugly head in our society, and... Uh, it's it's an ongoing scenario that ala- means that cop shows like Cops just aren't on TV anymore in that same way. And cops are not going to be portrayed in cinema in the same way without audiences going, nah, I'm wondering what Pretty the much. hell they're going to do with Batman moving forward, what, what Pattinson's Batman's going to be like. Because if it's a case of, well... The, this is the uh, Gotham City Police Department, and they're just good, hard-working cops, and there's some corrupt ones like Eckhart and... Uh, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> Batman was created in a time when we trusted the police, and that is not now. Um, it's It makes things difficult and challenging. Speaking of being created back in a time, beware the grey ghost. 
the uh, episode yes. w- uh, which brought back Adam West as uh, the um, my favorite episode of the entire run, without question. It, it's it, good... it's lovely. Um, go, in, go, fa- talk in fact, about it, uh, I, re- I read somewhere that the producer even said that if Adam West hadn't agreed to do it, they would have scrapped the episode entirely. So thank God he said mm. yes. So he's kind of a, a pulp hero that young Bruce idolized and kind of modeled his Batman yeah, persona. Yeah, he, he was a big nerd like. for him. I yeah. loved that. Uh, that's what I love about the episode is that Bruce, young Bruce Wayne was a big nerd for pulpy heroes, and mm. I kind of am to some extent, you know, you know, but it's, you know, and it's just I, I, I felt an attachment to Bruce Wayne in this episode, and mm. and the fact that they Adam West plays him just is just icing on the cake, and it's just and and also looking back, uh, looking at it now, also like with all the like fandoms running rampant and being dicks mm-hmm. and everything it's also a little a, a smart commentary on fandom toxicity a little bit if you think about it because because the guy the bad guy turns out to be an obsessive fan toy collector dude and bruce is kind of that way too and he has that shrine in the bat cave you know to the gray ghost which i've heard certain people Walker say is pretty silly, but I think is great. It's, it's encouraging fitting. to see Bruce keep a part of his childhood alive when he seems so like exactly. And I didn't see it as silly. I saw it as kind of him, like as a visual reminder to himself of fighting the good fight and be and keeping up being a hero. You know, uh, being mm. a hero in a positive way and and. and and it's kind of like uh, this is a more personal example for me, but I have a folder on my Dropbox on my phone that is filled with pictures I've taken of my six-year-old nephew since the day after he was born, because I just love him so much. And if I'm ever in like a real slump creatively or anything like that, I'll look at a few pictures of him and I'll suddenly feel motivated to just get out there and do things because I want to. I want to make a really the world a really great place for him. That is very sweet. Effectively, Bruce is trying to make sure that his actions would make the Grey Ghost proud until he eventually gets and to meet the actor. That's the thing. Bruce yeah. is he's the kind of person who collects father figures for a start, uh, including yeah. it being one himself when uh, when the Robins start to turn up. But the what you parade saying, of Robins. Yeah, what you're saying there, Kevin, <laughs> about the uh, the him keeping elements of his childhood. Uh, I, I don't think obsession is, is too strong a word in this context, um, but keeping elements of that around him, for him it works as a reminder of what he's not going to be. And it, it kind of, again, because the way Batman's constructed and his rogues gallery are often very tangibly aspects of him that have gone off in a in a more negative direction it gives you a sense of it's not just there but for the grace of god batman is good because he works hard at being good and being aware of the the darkness he could slip into if he lets it go a detail i love in this episode is when the actor who plays the gray ghost who i forget the name of the character well uh simon trent sorry but is Simon Trent, but uh, for all intents and purposes, when Adam West sees the shrine and when Batman tells him that the Grey Ghost was my hero, what he says is, so it wasn't all for nothing. And there's there's a lot of power to that, not just that line, but that sentiment of the putting so much work and effort into something that feels as ephemeral as entertainment and thinking that 
now that that's all passed and all interest has waned, that it was something that just disappeared. But to see it condensed into something with purpose and focus like that, that sees the light of it and makes it into something new, it's uplifting. Yeah, and it works on a meta level because Adam West was a Batman at one point, you know, in the 60s, which was also one of my formative versions of Batman in addition to this. So I, 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 so Mm. because Um, I, I watched reruns of that growing up as well as watching this, and it's just that was Batman for me. I mean, I love I love both for different reasons, but I, but they're still undeniably part of why I love Batman. Mm-hmm. Going back to uh, the Batman uh, movie from uh, 1966, after watching uh, Dark Knight Rises, I found it really charming this time around. I remember being irritated by it when we uh, covered it in 2012 because I was all about, come on, wait for the third Nolan film to come out. And we were yeah, covering all that. the Batmans. And I was, uh, we were harsh on the two, the two Burton films. We'll be coming back to them at some point. We'll maybe call it, we'll do a duet of Tim Burton's Batman because uh, they look Freaking amazing in 4K. Way too uh, down on the, the Adam West Batman uh, back in the, yeah. the day I have yeah. since Way too learned childish to... too childish and silly to make yeah. primary colors. <laughs> I, I, I was worried that ultimately its silliness might have had a uh, uh, too hard a, uh, a pendulous effect and made growing up comic fans double down on the darkness so that uh, they could never be confused as, as uh, for liking Pow Zap. Mm. It's not a phase, Mom. <laughs> but then the benefit, and I completely understand why the, the makers of this would have said, if we can't get um, Adam West, then we're not doing it. It's The key of having him there is that it feels like him giving his blessing mm. to this take on Batman, which for the people who were of the opposite mindset, no, Batman is silly and comic booky, and I don't yeah. want to see any any darker Batmans. It gives this the nod to say, yeah, what you're moving forwards with here is a part of this. Uh, it, it carries this heritage with it. Much it's like not cut off old it. Spock turning up in Star Absolutely. Trek. Absolutely. And, and also this episode kind of has a bit of a legacy in-universe of the DACAU, because if you know, uh, I've noticed this in re-watching a Justice League episode on a whim, but like there's a brief little like, shot of a, of a movie theater that shows that they're running a Grey Ghost movie. Oh, so, nice. So the, after the Grey Ghost became more relevant again in-universe because of the events of this episode, you know, Maybe Simon Trent got approached to with the rights to kind of have them like <laughs> adapt lovely. the character for the screen. So that's kind of so he must have been really happy about that. <laughs> I really like uh, Adam West's dramatic performance in this as well because they have to sell you Simon as some a man who's desperate and sad and lonely and um, has has tried and tried to to remain relevant and and keeps losing work and and that is. Uh, it, it's a tough sell without seeming like um, Gill in The Simpsons, like a, a Jack <laughs> Lemon role could, like, could you know, really be charming in that particular scenario, and, and you immediately start rooting for him, and you want good things to happen. He is tempted by uh, the, the the greedy side and manages to end up doing the, um, the, the 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 being the hero he always pretended to be, which is lovely to watch. This place is amazing. It's just like the Grey Ghost's lair. It's almost an exact replica. Let me show you something else. As a kid, I used to watch you with my father. 
The great ghost was my hero. So it wasn't all for nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I also love the fact that at the end, uh, when Bruce, after Bruce is when Bruce is walking away from him after getting his what looks like a Blu-ray disc signed. It's my video tape uh, collection. He says the exact same thing that he said as Batman to him, which was, I used to watch you with my father. He was, the Grey Ghost was my hero. And it, you can almost see like a knowing smile on Simon's face. Like, oh, same guy, maybe. Nice. You know, maybe a little bit of recognition. Like mm-hmm. almost, uh, whereas everyone else wouldn't know what was going on. But, you know, that's it. but it's just the fact that Bruce is basically kind of letting Simon in on the fact that you just helped Batman and in turn you helped me. Yes. You know, and it's, I love that. It's almost as if because he got to see both Simon Trent and the Grey Ghost, it's like he's letting him in as well and showing that he gets to see both his costumed persona and the man underneath who admired him and became hmm. Batman. Yeah, exactly. A little, little bit of a secret keeper. Mm. The next yes. on the list is Joker's Favor, and I was really torn between this and the man who killed Batman. Was it killed or shot? Uh, killed. 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 Which right. I'm surprised they got away with, considering yeah, the whole never say die moral guardian bullshit that was, was going on in those days. This actually kind of uh, you know highlights the the difficulties they were up against. Uh, the you weren't allowed to say die or kill if you watch that. Um, Spider-Man uh, uh, Marvel series from this same era they're very like the police carry what look like laser Lasers. gun staplers yeah, la- got... that confused me when I was a kid but I still enjoyed it <laughs> yeah I mean it's a, it's a, it's a great show and uh, some might you know you, you could definitely be, uh, say it's comparable to this uh, but the, I felt like that one suffered more from not being able to say things. It does underline or depict though, things. It does underline how ridiculously superficial these moral codes were. Mm. When you think you can't say kill or die, but you can say annihilate, obliterate, and destroy. <laughs> all of which I would argue are worse. <laughs> Even uh, decimate we, sounds horribly terrifying mm. when you think about it. And we can't have Joker shoot someone, just have them gas them until they laugh uncontrollably for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's... Or until they asphyxiate and keel over like Steve Martin in Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, that's uh, um, their, their, their naughty scenario with uh, their version of Joker. They had to create the Joker toxin or, or kind of circumnavigate the uh, elements in Burton's Batman. Remember when the um, news anchor um, starts laughing and then falls over with that Richter's grin on her face? That's a really great bit of, like, bone-chilling, uh, kid-accessible cinema. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, they, they, they ran with the idea of Joker toxin. And I think my favourite use of it is in Mask of the Phantasm when uh, he's... Uh, it's Hart Buckner's character. After he's... Like, unable to stop laughing, and Batman turns up in his hospital room. He's like, oh no! Like, he yeah. still can't stop laughing. It's still in his system. And it, it, there's a it's real. It's creepy, but it also kind of works. Yeah. There's a real sense of pity for those who actually go through it and you, you worry about them. But now we get to talk about Mark Hamill's Joker. And let's oh, also yes. say Kevin Conroy's Batman, because these two together in duet. Uh, form, I think, in the heads of so many people who have then gone on to read Batman comics, the vocalizations of the characters that you're reading. 
it's a level of definitiveness. I think mm. um, they were at the time before they'd actually gotten the Batman. They were sort of they'd they'd cast done casting calls for hundreds of men, none of whom could quite get. Bruce Wayne and Batman, but uh, five hundred. Andrea Romano said five hundred. Right. So I mean, she was probably exaggerating Romano, a little. Andrea Romano, she's an unsung but... hero. She's mm. uh, Andrea Romano. Not only is casting director, but vocal director for all of these and Avatar and a whole bunch of other incredibly high quality animated shows. She elevates this material by ensuring a certain high bar of quality and everyone knowing what the words I mean, mean. And, she, and she always went for really great actors to play the characters yeah. like i mean like i mean we're not going to discuss the character but i'll gush a little bit uh david warner is rachel ghoul i mm. mean he's one of my favorite actors I, I, in fact this and the second ninja trolls movie was my introduction to david warner as an actor and i love him as an, a vocal performer he just has that silky smooth voice that just mm. Mm. And it suits the character, although nowadays, because he's a white guy, his casting would be seen as problematic. But, you know, because he's uh, Rachel Gould is Middle Eastern, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so someone like Alexander Siddig or uh, Ben Kingsley might be better suited to the role nowadays. But, mm. you know. Now I'm imagining Ben Kingsley showing up as uh, Rachel Gould and then halfway through he goes, I'm not really immortal. My name's Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> The League of Shadows, lovely people. You know, he played Gandhi, but, you know. But, uh, yeah, Joker's Favor was the one I eventually chose. It's notable because it's an early episode, 22nd released, and a schmuck, a nobody in particular, gets the drop on Joker by the end. It's this guy who who shouts at him he from... Just out the Joker. Yeah, he just... <laughs> it's... it's uh, you, you pointed out that in both this and the man who uh, killed Batman, it's... Um, Matt Frewer. Matt Frewer, Max Headroom himself, who yeah. ends up really pissing off the Joker. And I, I know they can't make you, like, they can't say or do anything too upsetting in an in a animated show, but just the idea of Joker being pissed off at a normal dude, you're like, oh my goodness. Like, don't even bother trying to get police protection at this point. Mm, yeah. Well, the guy's response, I, I, I loved the way he's like, oh, no, what's going to happen to me? Like, the, the Joker in The Dark Knight mm-hmm. is just introducing himself to Gotham. This is a Joker that Gotham is already terrified yeah. of. Yeah. You've got Mark Hamill... Uh, he originally was uh, was asking uh, Andrea Romano, you know, have, have you got the Joker cast already? And they had they were already animating and uh, uh, Christmas with the Joker, I think, was the first one he turned up in with Tim Curry doing that voice. And uh, in the end, it turned out to be a producer who could not stand Tim Curry was like, yeah, we can lose him. And then eventually Mark Hamill was called back because he really wanted to play Joker. And- Thank God for petty grudges. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Tim Curry would have made an awesome Joker, very creepy and stuff. Oh, yeah. Mark Hamill, what he brings to it, just that laughable, where you, you, uh, the performances feels like you can laugh with him, but also be equally terrified with him. uh, him. Mm. Whereas with Tim Curry, you'd probably just be leaning more towards the terror. Although I do think that uh, Tim Curry's Joker would probably have leaned a little bit more towards Pennywise. um, No, uh, Cesar Romero. Oh really? He like Caesar Romero was. Look, think about the look of him. I can really imagine oh, Tim Curry right. doing yeah, that. Oh right, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Hmm. Yeah, the Joker in the Adam West Batman was uh, a clown amongst clowns, which made it difficult for him to really uh, stand out. So this was the first 
uh, on-screen Joker, obviously after Jack Nicholson, who had to. I mean, what an act to follow! You and in Hamill's own words, you're either doing Jack Nicholson or you're having to or do you're something completely to do different. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> mm. But he loved yeah. the fact that when they gave him the shooting script, it said that they'd written at the top. Don't think Nicholson. Yeah, which he was really yeah. chuffed with. Yeah, uh, I remember listening to a podcast he was on where he talked about like playing the Joker and stuff, and he said that Batman: The Mask of the Phantasm was when he started to really hone in on the Joker's laughter and mm. not just have one laugh, but have his laugh be like a musical instrument that would be illustrative of his mood. Yeah, yeah, where it could be boisterous and ha ha ha, and then other times be like <laughs> when he's being intimidating, you know. And I just, I think that's really great and. And it just shows you how great an actor Mark Hamill really is that he thought about that. He can he can go from threatening. Then there's this sort of like really unhinged laugh of like he's really gone now, and that's when it's like he might do anything at this point. Just you know within the margins of a a a PG ish Batman show. I think some of the some of the bits that I like most about Joker are actually when he's just like oh no, and just the the. Kind of self-pitying. Uh, was it Joker's Millions where he was sort of down on his luck a little bit? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, he, got, he gets yeah. hit with a tax bill and yeah. he has to try and cover the costs. <laughs> I, I also love what uh, like uh, the, the the scene in one of the episodes. I can't remember which one, but but where Bruce he meets up with Bruce. He somehow meets with Bruce Wayne in this little nightclub or something like that, or or they're at the same table and and. Just Bruce just starts needling him and taking the other piss out of him, and and, and Joker just like why I oughta, you know, and, just, and the fact that it's his sworn enemy right there taking the piss out of him and he has no mm. idea and I love it. <laughs> I think that's what the show does so well, and it comes up in this episode is that Joker has such a presence, but they always kind of remember that he's meant to be a clown, and that means he has to take the pratfall sometimes, and yeah. that means that other people show him up. A lot of the yeah. time it's Batman, but to him, the ones that really get to him are anyone else who isn't Batman, just uh, some rich, like, Playboy just managed to make a fool out of me. A wise yeah, guy. But, yeah, the whole tall poppy thing of getting a little too high on yourself and then getting cut down. Mm. <laughs> Again, I, I think it's that. a Mask of the Phantasm line where he goes, Don't put your hands on me! I don't know where you've been. And then he slaloms from fury to making a crack about it. It's that level of you don't know quite what he's going to do next that makes him more scary. Yeah, I, and I think part That's of really it is good. that you, you get the impression from Hamill, he doesn't quite know what he's going to do next. Mm-hmm. He does not have a firm anchor in who he is and how he behaves. He is entirely dependent on his own whim of the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it, it slips in how much that can unsettle him, if not actively scare him. Mm-hmm. Um but one of the uh, things uh, that they worked out was that we can't just have Joker and some goons. He'll be too scary for the kids. And the, just the way he's talking won't really uh, fit with the rest of the slightly more kind of like kid accessible stuff that's going on around. So they invented Harley Quinn to be his sounding board, someone that he could talk to, kind of a gangster's mole at first. But then it turned out people really, really liked Harley. And she mm. took on a life of her own do. as a result. I mean, uh, we, we know people who've named their 
children after Harley Quinn. For her turning up here, she's actually pretty much fully formed. Like, she's, she, she has loads of dimensions left to get, but they're not off-model with this first version of Harley. She's there mm. kind of just having a whale of a time presenting Mr. J. And I think I just got frustrated watching her throughout the series, like, almost realizing this guy is bad for me, and then coming back to him at the end. It was like... I just, yeah. it, I'm so gratified. I, that I've seen several friends go through that, and it's it was always frustrating to me. And I'm like, what do you see in them? It's gratifying that the modern version of her is a version of Harley that has realized he's a scumbag, he's bad for her. That's what threw me mm. so much about Suicide Squad. It feels like the original story for that was Joker betrays Harley, and Harley realizes, yeah, creep. But in the, the final version, the final cut that hits cinemas, Joker turns up at the end. She's like, my puddin's back. I'm doing Arlene Sorkin instead of Margot Robbie. But like, she, she was happy to see him. And then you get Birds of Prey, which we covered in our show several weeks ago. But even the Injustice games work on Harley and her emancipation. Mm. I think the what we said before about the episodic nature of the series as opposed to the, the longer format that you get with a movie for character exploration, Harley is one of those characters who's a little bit underserved by that because mm. it means, because she was created specifically for this show, it's like she was created to do something very particular and they have to keep bringing her back to do that particular thing, which is to provide a reflection for Joker. So a Harlequin is made to serve. Precisely. And it takes, I think it's taken bringing her out of the confines of that um, and for a creative team that um, that has included, obviously, the, the immense power that Margot Robbie brings to the character mm. to really give her a, a sparkly glitter roller boot out of that, mm. that um, trap of having to keep coming back and be the adorer of Mr. J. Also mm. notable, the Harley Quinn animated series, which uh, came yes. out a few years ago, oh. is freaking fantastic. Yes. Love it. I still and we haven't even seen it. all of it. Yeah. I haven't. We actually stopped watching it because we were we knew this show was coming up and we didn't want to be too influenced. I ke- yeah, I kept every time in Fair this. Enough. Like, Fair this- enough. I mean, I... I recently just started watching the new DuckTales and I'm like, no, I got to I got to hold back a bit. <laughs> also so. another fantastic show. Uh, but yeah. but yeah, the uh, you know, Harley turns up here in Joker's favorite, but the end involves this guy who's forced to do a favor for Joker which involves an attempt to blow up Commissioner Gordon. Uh, you know, going, you know what? I'm just going to corner you in an alley and blow us both to H-E double hockey sticks. And Joker breaks. He's like, oh, oh no, I hope Batman doesn't come and save me. And <laughs> Who's that? I can hear is that Batman. <laughs> he's like genuinely terrified. It's hilarious to see, like, he's met a guy who just doesn't give a fuck anymore. And it's it's like, oh, oh, I can't scare you. I'm powerless at this point. And that's a wonderful end mm. to this particular episode. Yeah. Also, the at the beginning, at the end, you know, you're like the beginning of the episode, the guy is complaining about like, you know, maybe my wife's making meatloaf again, and then at the end, he's like, you know, I could eat anything right now, maybe even meatloaf. Yeah. And- you miserable little nobody! If I get caught, your wife and son are history. You're not getting caught. Not this time. I found this blown out of the van. This is how it ends, Joker. No big schemes, no grand fight to the finish with the Dark Knight. Tomorrow, all the papers were saying is that the great Joker was found blown to bits in an alley. 
alongside a miserable little nobody. <laughs> kind of funny. Ironic, really. See, I can destroy a man's dreams, too. And that's really the only dream you've got, isn't it? Look, Charlie, you've had a busy day. All this running around, all this excitement with... Batman! Stop! You... you're crazy! I had a good teacher. <laughs> Say goodnight, Gracie. No! Batman! Batman! How long have you been there? Long enough. Put it down, Charlie. You know he'll just escape again. This is the only way my family stays safe. All right, you win. Take it easy. Here's everything on his blasted family. Names, addresses, it's all there. <clears throat> You're no fun anymore, Charlie. Hey, Joker. Funny. A million laughs. Go home, Mr. Collins. Home. I never thought that could sound so good. I wonder what Bonnie's making for dinner. Right now, anything can taste great. Even meatloaf. Well, we're on the subject of Harley. We can talk about Harley's yeah. Holiday, which is your uh, pick, Toby. Do you want to uh, talk about why that's a oh, particularly yeah. great showcase for her? Sure thing. I'll uh, just go forward in my notes. So, I was... I was torn between this and Mad Love, which we mentioned was like if any of the episodes from that, like the new adventures of Batman was to get in, it would be that one. The one that I think is the one that people remember. And it's what kind of codified her origins. It's what it cemented her as a character. But everything that you were talking about, about how in recent years, Harley has kind of gone away from that the place she started in and has actually gone into a much more free direction i think that holly's holiday is the one that actually reflects that much more and i think that you in this episode you see that after working on herself and making a big step by deciding to take a day out in a public and crowded space after Arkham Asylum has said that, yeah, you've made progress. You can go out. And even Batman shakes her hand, not questioning it like he does with Peng Penguin when he is out of uh, prison and is, is claiming he's reformed. In, that, in Birds of a Feather, he's much more sort of critical at first. But with Harley, he says, yeah, no, congratulations. But when she's out there in a public and crowded space, she has an anxiety attack when she's confronted with a stranger that, yeah. and they didn't mean to come off as aggressive and hostile, but the misunderstanding nevertheless read as hostile to Harley. And I think that it makes it really understandable from the audience's perspective. So that and the chaos that ensues as she goes through her own very bad day as she phrases it is very relatable yeah, and endearing that's not your daddy that's your daddy with a tank <laughs> <laughs> oh it becomes God. such a cartoon i love it and me, me too it's great it's oh. 
it's what I see in like this provides the DNA for things like Birds of Prey, where Harley mm. is she's completely sort of divorced from uh, Mr. J in this, and it's just really refreshing and heartening to see that even at this early stage, Harley was a character that people just loved to see. And it wasn't just because of her proximity to Mark Hamill's Joker, who is very compelling in his own right. But Harley is someone that we love to see and spend time with. And more than that, we love to see her doing well. So even when she's having a bad time, she it's, it's a whale of a time for us. And then by the end of it she's shown kindness even though she ends up back in arkham asylum yeah i mean batman even gives her gives her like he was like i didn't even get to keep the dress i bought with my own money and then batman basically wordlessly hands it to her at the end and he just she responds by planting a big one on his face (laughs) but but he also but not only that he does say i had a bad day too once just like understanding that it's okay that what she had there was he doesn't sort of question it it's not like him referring to the death of his parents is intended to belittle her own day where she had people chasing her and she had an anxiety attack in a public space he is recognizing that she has had a bad day and that doesn't have to be the thing that like sort of ruins the rest of her life it defines well it's it's a direct refutation of what is often picked up by people who like the um the the joker as chaos god um element the the everybody Mm. it just takes one bad day to push people over the edge into being the nightmare monster this is the antithesis of that yeah you had a bad day but you know what with the right support you can come straight back from that the irony is uh, that if she had done all of the, caused all of this chaos intentionally and done every single thing that she does on her day off on purpose, she'd have had a very good day because that's the sort of thing she wants to do. It's just that she was really trying to go straight this time. And mm. um, yeah. she it, was it, really committed to her recovery. And I found that very admirable given how much I'm committed to doing good for myself and others. It, I could feel her frustration, even if she ends up um, overreacting and actually making things worse for herself. Hey, don't I know you? I don't think so. Something about that chin. I know. You're Bruce Wayne, the boy billionaire. Hmm, unattached, I see. Um, <laughs> may I help you, miss? Uh-oh, enter the jealous girlfriend. Hey, remember me? That big charity bash a few years back? The one the Joker robbed? I was the clown girl holding the gun on ya! Oh, don't worry. I'm over the crime thing, see? I'm rehabilitated and ready to live my life right. How nice for you. <laughs> Goodbye. Gee, you make one little mistake and they never let you forget. I'm looking for is a fair chance to start over. That's not asking too much, is it? Miss? I just want to live a normal life without some cop always pouncing on me. Hey, what's the deal? Hold it. I didn't do anything. That's a security alarm. Just give me back. <laughs> That's my dress. I paid for it fair 
and square. I know. Just let me remove the security tag. And... It's a frame up, a fix. You ain't taking me back to the slam at John Law. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, Bruce and his bad days, the next one is Perchance to Dream, which is another Toby one, and that sta- uh, stars that eventually we find out is all the Mad Hatter's doing. So why is this? Why is this one exactly? Mm, mm. So, so good in that role he's he's amazing in this because he has this uh, his he gives the character this excellent voice that has a that has a delicateness to it but it's also disconnected in its tone and, and a so bit theatrical as well yeah so you know when he's vulnerable you do see something kind of pitiable there but like especially when he expresses his momentary doubts in private in his original episode when you think you know maybe if he actually does back off he could be a better person but it he also gives Jervis Tetch a venomous energy to his obsessions once he really gets into his villainy and in this episode I think he's so flexible because you the idea of him giving batman what he wants as a solution to getting batman out of his own life is one you don't really see often employed in these stories or media involving the character it's always as we were saying earlier batman's an irritation and for him it's just like fine just go into the space and let me live my life as like crazy and obsessive as it can be then, in addition to to the Mad Hatter and his role in the story, this episode is also one of the best things that Kevin Conroy has ever done as Batman. Everything everything rests on his emotional reaction to developments, which sells you on his internal conflict. Like he has a remarkable range when he voices Bruce in all of the episodes, but in this particular, because it feels as if he's really actually finally opening himself up to the idea that maybe he doesn't have to be Batman, that maybe he can put the burden or the responsibility down. And as such, Captain Conroy plays Bruce perhaps in one of the most vulnerable ways I've ever seen him deliver in his long career playing the character. By the end, when he confronts the Mad Hatter, he is furious. The, like in a way that feels like he might lose control or Mm. he is losing control. This is a very empathetic version of the character, particularly in this point before we get to the sort of new adventures of, Batman, where he becomes much more the stereotyped version of someone who's very cold and obsessive. In this, he is empathetic, but here he just loses all sympathy for the Mad Hatter and is saying, for God's sake, this isn't one of your storybooks. And he is just indignant that he could ever do this. And when he comes out of this dream, the delivery of him just asking, why? Good morning, Master Bruce. Rise and shine, sir. I'm lucky to be awake at all. I fell into that trap like an amateur. Trap, sir? How'd I get back here? Robin? Robin, sir? Uh, A young lady? I thought you and Miss Selina were... Pardon me, sir. None of my business. If this is a joke, Alfred, it's not funny. 
If it's a joke, sir, I assure you it's on me. I've just prepared breakfast. Perhaps morning coffee will clear the cobwebs. Selena? Your mother called, darling, said you could use some cheering up. And uh, who better for the job than the woman you're marrying next week? Bruce, you really are upset. What's wrong? I feel as if I'm someone else. It's crazy, but I know I'm... Batman! Kevin Conroy in general is just really... It's just absolutely incredible in terms of how he pitches his voice for Bruce Wayne and Batman. So he's, mm. without like without overdoing it, kind of like Christian Bale mm. does to some extent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, but I feel like, like there's a scene in On Leather Wings where he actually talks in his Bruce Wayne voice while still wearing the bat suit. Mm. If they had done a scene like that where he's talking in both sides of it while still in the bat suit, in like, in a in a future Batman movie where, you know, oh, I feel like that people probably uh, would be a little more sold on the duality of the character, but also probably be less critical about like Batman's voice being all gravelly and the, mm. you know, because, and I feel like Nolan kind of missed a trick, not replicating that for his movies to some extent, really. Wait, to I still a degree, like what he, he did, did but especially still- in the original Batman begins. If you listen, uh, Bale's voice is much more soft and, and thoughtful when he's Bruce Wayne. And then he's like, yeah. I'm a friend, but like he goes mental in that second and third ones. Exactly. And, and, and I, they brought I, it, forward with Ben Affleck sort of like having uh, you know uh, speakers all around the room that make his voice sound like this like a voice modulator of mm. some sort yeah he nicked that but, off Mr. And I feel, Freeze I, just, I feel like we needed a scene like that one in On Leather Wings where he's having both different voices but he uses them while he's still in the bat suit and mm. I feel like it, it, I feel like that all the parodies and such that had done to death of Christian Bale's Batman voice yeah. post Dark Knight probably would have been nipped in the bud a little bit I think it works particularly well in animation because the idea of voices inhabiting just the characters you see in and the character designs means that you sort of take for granted that, oh, this is the voice for the character. So to see, I'm unsure if at that point we've managed to see in Leather Wings, Bruce just in day-to-day life outside of the costume, if we've actually managed to see... In his one the... mustard shirt. Yeah, in his one mustard <laughs> and the, shirt. And that brown, dapper, uh, brown yeah. dark brown suit. Yeah, but... no, joke's on you, he's got a closet full of them. <laughs> They're just all exactly the same, and the next to that he's got all of his Batman suits. It's a good signifier, though. If he's wearing the mustard shirt and the brown blazer... Uh, with the double-breasted number, it's going to be a good episode. If he's wearing the black suit with a white shirt and a red tie and he's got very blue eyes, it could go either way. Mm. And watch yeah. out and for the turquoise cummerbund. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, Toby, you were talking about the voice. Yeah, I mean, the I will just say for that design where he's got the white shirt and the very black suit, mm. what always gets to me is in that one scarecrow episode where he's doing his Bruce Wayne disguise and he just puts on a little pretzel moustache <laughs> and scarecrow doesn't recognize Bruce Wayne you actually have made me start thinking about the the significance of the Batman voice the uh the way Conroy modulates it is he's got a very soft voice for playing Bruce Wayne but then when he's Batman he is a stern authority figure. Like He's like, no, it's Two-Face. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't go crazy with it. It's kind of a firm drawing of a line. That's what Batman, in this classical midpoint 
prototypical residual self-image of Batman that we kind of default to is this bright line drawn uh, that, that says, no, no further than this. It's mm. the savagery and the, you know, where is murder? that stuff that Bale pulled out that made Batman a wild animal that actually isn't about order. It's about like violence and anger. The way mm. I visualise the difference between the two, when Conroy is doing Bruce Wayne, he is a son of Gotham. Mm. He is a child of the city. He is smaller. He is looking up at the rest of Gotham. Mm. When he's Batman, he's the shadow that curves over and overlooks Gotham and looks down on it. And you can almost hear the voice dun, change dun, dun, dun. position. Yeah, mm. absolutely. <sighs> It's a stabilizing presence and voice that when he talks and I think that when he's Bruce, there's a playfulness and the fact that he goes, hey, what's up, doc? And when in that particular clip is very much a case of this is someone who when he's asking questions to follow up on the latest villain and their gimmicks or their background, he will ask them as Bruce Wayne. But he does so with a sort of idle curiosity like uh, did oh did he really do this sort of thing and then when he's telling his allies as batman he will say the penguin managed to get this from that there's an intent there Hmm. when uh sharon was describing batman being above the city uh, i can imagine most of you listening kind of even just reflexively thought a little bit of shirley walker's themes Oh, um, yes. This woman was to Batman uh, on TV what John Williams was to Star Wars. Uh, she and Superman and Superman. And Superman. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean she, the Superman theme. I mean the Superman theme for the animated series is good, but you know it, the the John Williams theme is always. Did you know John Williams only mind. only worked on one Superman film? The first one. I believe he did only did the first yeah. one, and then yeah. other composers kind of. After that, that it was um, uh, uh, what a lot of a lot of other people redoing his music, but never quite finding anything that was better than the original mix of different yeah. themes. Yeah, ref- but, basically mm, variations on a the theme. But yeah. that's why I said Star Wars because John Williams has worked on nine movies and created, you know, soundscapes and feelings for all of them that are different for each one and. The amount of effort that Shirley Walker put in to creating different themes and sounds for each one, like they have their own mm. personality over, you know, well over a hundred episodes. It's it's crazy. And, the amount and of also work. themes for each of the different villains, yeah. like you know, that whenever you hear that, that's the joke. How is that scary? But it is.
to kind of go back to Grey Ghost for a moment, I love that old-timey kind of hero theme they gave mm. the Grey Ghost for that episode. So good. Mm. But yeah, the um, at the time, animated shows did not have full orchestras. So this felt like it blew. Mark Hamill and Kevin Conroy came back to do ADR and, and sort of like tighten up the uh, the lines for uh, the, the first few episodes as they were about to be aired. And then the orchestra sort of piped in and, and they were like, what is going on? This is not your average animated show. And another thing that's really important to bear in mind, it was not too long after Turtle Mania and every single other show on TV for kids was trying to do Turtles. I don't think Batman ever really tried to do Turtles. They, like, they were well aware that these guys, that the Batman predated Turtles informed upon Turtles through Frank Miller and, and Daredevil, because let's face it, Frank Miller's Daredevil was him wanting to do Batman. It hasn't dated so much because it doesn't. it's not doing that thing where it's like, we could have Turtles as well, even though there was a massive marketing machine behind this. The, the Kenner action figure line that stemmed from, um, that they, you know, they did Star Wars in the 70s and 80s, and then they moved on and, and did a whole bunch of other sort of like movie tie-ins, including the 89 Batman, and they were doing a bunch of uh, DC characters and there was like this was very much tied in with toys but it never felt like you know that they there was even a really great game for batman the animated series on the super nintendo that i remember playing voraciously when i was growing up yeah um i never beat it but i still love it (laughs) but it never felt like the toy sales side of it was interfering with the artistic side of it and like you hear horror stories from poor joel schumacher about uh, in, in interviews about how they were kind of forcing his arm for the third and fourth Batman films of like, no, 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 we need to sell this new Batmobile and we need to sell Poison Ivy figures and we need to sell Mr. Freeze copters and you're going to put them in and you're going to like get this done. And the uh, what what artistic side could have been there and present in those the, the latter day Batman of the 90s uh, was kind of choked in plastic. Which is obnoxious, because ultimately those toys are gone off of shelves now. And then when we go back and, and, and watch the uh, uh, films, it feels like they're, they're pushing that side of things too hard. And notably, a lot of Batman and Robin toys just sat on shelves, because kids were like, oh, I'm over it. Because <laughs> they'd I mean, already had their fill of really Robin good toys Batman toys based on the animated series, which had their own kind of style to them. The next one on our list is Birds of a Feather, so we're staying with Toby. Um, this is mm. Penguin, who is very different from Danny DeVito's uh, version. He's played fact, by Paul Williams, a wonderful character actor. Indeed. And a great oh. musician. Just, and they were very yeah. deliberately trying not to make him a sewer-dwelling pervert. Mm. Uh, mm. He's, he's yeah, got they, more in common with the... Is it Burgess? He's at Burgess Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. It, yeah, uh, yeah, Burgess Meredith. It's definitely in line with Burgess Meredith's version, but he plays him a little more... Hoity-toity. Refined. Uh, refined. Mm. In the process of watching this series, something I've realised about Penguin is that he's very 
flexible as a villain in Batman stories because some recent comic things have done him as a spiteful little git. Like, he will just, like, kill someone, or not even that, he will ruin their life just because they cast him a, like, a idle smile one day and he just took that as a slight. He, you know, he can be a very Donald Trump style sort of like rich person with a fragile ego who decides I will put everything into making sure that I am in the highest position of power and able to crush and anyone who slights me. But he's also someone who can be a like you know just a Fabergé egg thief, a bird enthusiast, an <laughs> um, umbrella gadget combatant, a person who is aspiring to a refined lifestyle but constantly looked down on, a cunning gangster, a, like gross Danny DeVito weirdo, <laughs> and also the in-between guy who knows what's going on at the Iceberg Lounge, and they do that in the uh, new Batman uh, Adventures season, which I really like that they do that because it's is a sense of progression where that season felt like things had shifted in Gotham somewhat so at least he was doing different things to what he had been doing but in this episode it ties into the idea we've brought up that there are several episodes in the sort of mid portion of this run where the villains that have been already established get a chance to either reform or have an attempt at reform and see what that might look like for the rogues gallery and this one does stick out in people's minds when they think about that premise in this show because it takes that similar approach to batman returns and framing penguin as someone who aims to be considered part of gotham's elite but is looked down on but in some ways i think that this is more successful paul h williams injects the character with enough charisma to the viewer that you get the sense of refinement to him. Plus when he talks about pastimes, rubbing the, rubbing the upper class, it like an icebreaker, it's hilarious. So when he gives in to his furious impulses at the end, it feels in keeping with how the penguin has been characterized. Someone who has a short fuse when he's been slighted, but you at least have a bit of sympathy for him. And you also get this feeling that Penguin is not the example of this villainous upper class person. To be honest, there's a lot of the people in the upper class in Gotham who are awful. Oh, yeah. Mm. I agree with that, definitely. I mean, he even says at the very end of the episode, society is to blame. Which is really on the nose. We do live in especially one. for the time. <laughs> I think we need another villain to remind us of that. <laughs> Sorry, carry yes, on, Kevin. We do. Paul Williams, like like Toby said, just injects really great charisma, and and I remember listening to him on a podcast talk about how arrogant he was when he was dealing when he was doing drugs and stuff like that. So he probably brought a little bit of that history, hmm. you know, with him when playing the Penguin too, you know. And and also, I do agree that the whole thing where he's like, "Hey, remember when I robbed you?" You know, as an icebreaker. That's brilliant. That's <laughs> it, 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 I love that. <laughs> and an everyone's icebreaker. all uncomfortable. Like, really? What's, why is he here? I wonder if he has this sort of assumption. It's like, oh well, it didn't matter to you. You're rich. You got over it. Yeah. I love the set dressing around the penguin as well. Whenever he's the the focus of attention, and we're in like his lairs, everything just always seems to look so. 
completely out there and like he surrounds himself with massive stuff or great big mm. ducks and <laughs> bird just, stuff yeah. it's ridiculous <laughs> penguin is uh, ever so slightly in danger of kind of losing his um gimmicks to other hoods so like if if he's going well i'm gonna go for more of an uh antarctic uh thing and then mr freeze comes along and does cold weather so much more than he does well i can't really do that maybe i'll just kind of like lean on the whole i'm a gangster no there's two-face plus he's got the whole duality thing um maybe i'm just uh, a rich guy <laughs> umbrellas umbrellas is my thing <laughs> yeah i love Nobody those wants umbrellas <laughs> I it's love birds, really. Umbrellas too. They're just mm. so there. There's so many of them. There's a little helicopter one. There's one that shoots gas. There's a machine gun one. I love it. So, do you reckon that he sometimes mixes up the umbrellas, and so he is about to fire it, and then it ends up being the helicopter one, and he just goes <laughs> it's slamming into a wall. Well, maybe a little bit of trial and error, like Tony Stark was doing with his Iron Man suit <laughs> in the first movie. It's high time you threw a party and make it the biggest bash ever. Yes, yes, but how? I'm out of charities until spring at least. And there are no interesting celebrities. Hmm. Remember when the Joker crashed Muffy Van Alton's last affair? He robbed us blind, but hey, what a giggle, hmm? Yeah, it was amusing. But the Joker's yesterday's news. Then have a peek at today. Sorry about the intrusion, sir, but at least you've been ransacked by a man of impeccable taste. If you're trying to surprise me, you're doing an excellent job. Say, who's there? Two-Face? Croc? Joker, old shoe? None of the above, Penguin. Oh, no, not you. Get used to it. Wherever you go, I'll be right behind you. Precisely where you belong. The next one's almost got him, and that's one of yours, uh, Kevin. This yeah. is a classic. Go for it. Yeah, I, I love it because it just it shows that the villains have a social life. It kind of humanizes some of the villains a bit, like to show that they can interact with each other and mm. talk about the glory days and stuff. And also the little thing with Catwoman in there is pretty nice too, mm. with uh, their relationship brings a really another dimension to them. They spend the uh, time uh, playing poker and talking about Batman, and uh, Killer Croc is is there, and and they've gone through their little schemes that they've uh, attempted to catch or kill Batman in the past, and Killer Croc says, I threw a rock at him, a big rock. Which is funny because it, it allows them to disregard him and kind of um, look down on him. The camera pans over each of them and they're just looking at him all stone-faced, so yeah. to speak. Tumbleweeds. It just make, it adds to the hilarity of it. It's like, like pin drop. <laughs> but um, at the end, it turns out that he was Batman all along. And there's this wonderful stylized bit where uh, he th- Croc throws Joker into a pile of other people who turn out to all be cops. And then the light that was hanging over the poker game swings backwards and forwards. And then when it swings away from Croc, he's in silhouette and you see the Batman suit with the ears and the eyes. And then it swings back to him. Again, I feel like they could have gotten away with the whole snowflake tears because that is a fantastic shot. And, mm. and it also just shows you how good animation is as a medium that they can do little, for lack of a better term, gags like that. Yeah. And it's still being effective. Yeah. It's the it, uh, the idea being that by the end of this, they're all just that little bit more spooked that Batman could be anywhere. And the, while they have been humanized, it, it also kind of uh, illustrates that um, 
I suppose it's almost like, well, Batman's so... This feeds into the whole Batman would be so prepared and would be able to beat anyone because he'd know about everything and he'd have everything already set up. And it's like, eh, that's... uh, I like the episodes where Batman gets the jump put on him and actually is wrong-footed. So Perchance to Dream is an excellent example of where they really get Mm. to him. I don't even think that the Manhattan knew quite how badly he was going to affect him. Mm. I don't think uh, he did either, which yeah. almost makes it all the more pitiable and pretend to dream, really. That he was like, I was trying to give you what you wanted. Mm. Mm. I want a nice, clean game, gentlemen. That'll be a first. So, I hear you know who nailed the Mad Hatter last week. No kidding. He sure gets around for one guy. Yeah, well, that's where you're wrong. I don't think it is one guy. Huh? Well, yeah, I figure it. Gordon's got a bunch of them stashed someplace like a SWAT team. He wants you to think it's one guy, but... Eh, you're always seeing double. It's obvious our cape friend suffered some crime-related trauma when he was younger. Perhaps an over-anxious mugger blew off a piece of his face. Sure, <laughs> he could be all gross and disgusting under that mask. Uh, no offense, Harv. Just deal. Well, you know what I think? Not the robot theory again. Well, he could be. Hello, boys. Get me an herbal tea and deal me in. Scram, lady. This is a private... Why, you little... Poison Ivy. It's been a long time, Harvey. You're still looking halfway decent. Half of me wants to strangle you. And what does the other half want? To hit you with a truck. We used to date. Ah. Ah. What brings such a dainty dove to this dismal den? Running from the law. And the Batman, too, of course. Of course. Likewise. You got it. Same here. You'd think one of us would have got him by now. I've come the closest. Are you kidding? I was the one who nearly... Nobody's come closer to snuffing the Batman than me. In Uh, your dreams. Get out of my face. The fact of the matter is we each have an almost gotten Batman story. I know mine's the best, but let's hear yours anyway. This leads on to House and Garden, but I will pause to mention that uh, Poison Ivy in Almost Got Him, turned, I think she gives her story first, and she's huh, barefoot in a pumpkin patch and like sort of <laughs> throwing pumpkin bombs at Batman. And I'm like, this is now probably a good idea to uh, explore the way women are treated in this series, because that's been yeah. a recurring thing we've noted uh, as as we've been going along and I, I don't want to cast particularly negative aspersions on the whole team or even individuals within that team I think most of us got kind of a rude awakening if we saw the uh, the killing joke a few years ago that uh, animated movie and they had a whole extra like first act um, to it which wasn't uh, uh, part of the original very slender book uh, wherein Barbara pines over Batman and then has sex with Batman on the rooftop before then the whole horrible thing that happens to Barbara gets carried out. And this was directed by Bruce Tim and uh, starred Hamill and uh, Conroy reprising their roles. I think it was, was it Tara Strong again as Barbara? It is Tara Strong, I checked. 
if you watch the animated series, you can kind of see the beginnings of this, well, maybe she has a crush on Batman. It's not heavily leaned into, but it does oddly feel like the creative team have said, well, she's all grows up now. Bruce Timm in particular has kind of a 70s pin-up girl style, which tends to depict women all pretty much the same way. And there is an overt sexiness to how they're drawn. And that does eventually kind of stray into objectification. I, th- I think if I'm going to pick up on any of it because I I will be the first person to say I find the artwork of the show absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I have precisely zero objections with the way he draws Ivy and Harley and the the way they are um uh, the the imagery is framed. I think they're beautiful. I love them. They they're artistic. They are uh, incredibly appealing to watch. I think it became much more impactful by the third season because it was starting to become apparent how repetitive it was getting. Yeah. That mm. all of these women are roughly the same shape. And yes, some of them have red hair, some of them have blonde hair, but most of them have the same hairstyle. Mm. You get an occasional brunette, but not very many. It It's just... It, like you said when we were watching it, Alex, it started to get to the point where it was like, Bruce, Tim, you're really just like appealing to your own personal tastes here, which is which is fine. But people are giving you money to do this, and you're, you're supposed to be writing something or you know directing something for everybody. Well, not everybody, but you know what I mean. It's it's for more than just you, Bruce. Um, mm. But the I, I think things mean things, and people will take stuff away. Exactly, and I think one of the the points as well that that means it's a distinction worth making is if you look at Montoya who is introduced fairly early in the first season. She's a good girl. She's a she's a hero. She is not drawn the same way as the, the villainesses. It's the bad girls that get the curvy hips and the shapely legs. And I am not saying that Montoya should have looked like everyone else. I'm just saying that the diversity seems to be uh, thrown out of the window when it comes to all... Um, well, as... Um, uh, Kevin Smith puts it there's one bitch in the world one bitch with many faces the bad girls are all of a type and I think that's a problem they're all coded bisexual as well I would say it's the difference between the agency to be bisexual and the exhibitionism of mm. being bisexual this this whole sort of um, the, the bad girls are sexy but also the bad girls are sexy and that's kind of this this idea of if you want a girl who's going to be appealing she's got to be a bad girl yeah uh, bad girl uh, Barbara is kind of in the middle insofar as she's got the curves and she's definitely positioned as a good girl and she becomes Batgirl on her own terms she doesn't ask Bruce's Batman's permission and I hit the fucking roof in the uh, third season when I realised when Robin quits and goes off and becomes Nightwing this is Dick Grayson and Batman has got a has not yet got Tim at this point there's a vacancy to fill he effectively lets Barbara who's been doing her vigilante thing for a while into the Batcave told her that he's Bruce Wayne and that Dick Grayson is Robin. And she's known them both and never worked it out. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? (laughs) That Batgirl, this incredible, supposed to be self-sufficient detective, daughter of the police chief, 
hasn't worked out Batman is Bruce Wayne, as well as a romantic relationship between Barbara and Dick, without Barbara knowing Dick was Robin. She literally gets told it by Batman. There is a very amusing He knew moment. she was Barbara, mainly because she's got the red hair sticking out the back. <laughs> There's a very oh, amusing you know. moment in that episode, though, where Alfred briefly tries to convince her that he's Batman. In all see, I am Batman. <laughs> but no, that's that was, way... That it's brilliant. like a hundred episodes in. And obviously yeah. Batgirl doesn't turn up until about halfway through that. Yeah, I do. But there's a lot of Batgirl episodes before she realises that... that she likes Robin and Dick, and they're the same guy. And it's like, that usually doesn't even last half a movie. Yeah. I do love her you outfit. Love Vicky she has this cape. sort of, this, this her um, first soft outfit. grey, yeah, she, the, the first one. She has this soft grey turtleneck. And there's something about the way the fabric of her costume moves that makes it look like it's uh, like a jersey fabric rather than a, a latex or a rubber type. Thing, which means that you really get this sense that she can move in it and it's flexible mm. and it's breathable and I do like that. And uh, ultimately, uh, the way Batgirl is positioned uh, can inform on the way that uh, guys and girls and otherwise, you know, see the way that oh, a proactive woman in the Batman world can thrive and uh, and isn't necessarily a villainess. And Catwoman is almost a better example of that because Selina Carl has her agency, knows what she's doing and very rarely gets wrong-footed. And being effectively just a cat burglar means she steals from rich people and gives it to animals. So it's like mm. she, she again skirts that line of actually you're not really doing that much in the way of terrible. And Ivy over time has... if. <laughs> Back in the 90s, it was like, oh, see, she cares more about the environment than people. And in specifically the 1997 Batman and Robin, she's uh, portrayed as a harridan and a harpy and this crazy rolling-eyed Greenpeace woman who's like, you know, the environment's suffering. And Uma Thurman leans into it hard and leans on the camp. But then it's almost like yeah. 35 years later, oh, shit, Ivy was right all along. Mm. And she was mm. right back then. And it's not so much that we need to care more about the environment than people, but if the environment goes down, guess who's going first? Pretty much. And there needs to be more of a case of, oh, often villains will raise these things that say, oh, these are really good points, but because you tried to kill a person, let's stop you, and then never address the thing that you were raising. Mm. I think with Ivy, what's encouraging about the fact that she did get paired with Harley in mm. this is that I, as you were talking about with Catwoman, what's encouraging to see is that you have the sort of rogues gallery archetype, the, uh, the role that each character fills. You know, you've got your Catwoman and Joker that you can put them in and they're very recognisable and they fulfil that role. But what makes them characters is when you sort of see them actually interact with and have other motivations and for Catwoman it's not just about the thrill of the chase and getting all of these priceless jewels and things it's to actually employ that to beneficial ways things that she can help people help animals with and with Ivy I think what is good is that she has become more of a person that is recognized as a friend and perhaps more by someone else who also really needs friends and 
that's what I enjoy seeing in this show is things like this and in Almost Gotham where you see that these characters, apart from someone like the Joker, are people who their role as like one of Batman's rogue gallery people is not all that they are. They can be other things and maybe they want other things. I feel like with Batgirl, it's not a terrible depiction of her. It's actually a very heroic depiction of her. And they're almost there so many times. Like, the, the she gets kidnapped in uh, that Mr. Freeze film that we talked about. But she mm. also breaks out. And she also, you know, she won't just stay still. And she has her own uh, uh, drive and, to a degree, her own agency. It feels like that she keeps getting hampered and clamped. There are times when, like, Baby Doll tries to destroy the entire city by turning generator units into a neutron bomb or something. And Batman ends up fighting Killer Croc up, down, left, and right, and fighting Baby Doll while Barbara basically saves the entire city. And it's like, Batman, help Barbara make sure this thing goes properly. Killer Croc, just leave Batman alone and run away. What the fuck are you doing? Like, Killer Croc is pointing to her and saying, like, she's crazy, she's got to do it. And then Batman punches him, and the Killer Croc is just, okay, well, I'll fight because you're fighting me. Why are you hitting me? But the end of that episode is... Or at least the end of that episode should be. Barbara saves the day and then Batman goes and Killer Croc's going back to Arkham. And then Batgirl rails on him and says, what the hell, Batman? And she effectively needs to put Batman in his place. And just, there needs to be times when Batman fucks up and she points that out to him. There needs to be times when she fucks up and he points that out to her. But it needs to be kind of more balanced. Mm. Yeah. Well, this, if, if we look at, at Batman as this guardian of Gotham, like you said, this, this bright line that's drawn in the sand that says to people, these are the things that you don't do, he is the epitome of Daddy Gives Structure. Mm. And the, uh, the characters that he is um, benevolently paternal to are the flip side of that. And I think mm. that's one of the reasons why a lot of the villainesses in particular come off as very young. Mm. Ivy, however, uh, in House and Garden, which is a messed up episode, it's uh, it's one of the season two ones, it's very creepy, she decides to uh, retire to suburban bliss and gets a, uh, a, a beautiful, well-to-do husband and a pair, you know, adopts his, his two uh, very nice uh, kids, these two well-behaved boys. And Batman's like, I don't buy it. And he's like, he's a peeping Tom. He's hanging around the suburban neighborhoods up a tree in broad daylight, looking through her windows with binoculars. And it's like, I feel like Spider-Man in Homecoming. He is, Batman is not suited to the suburbs. It's like, there's no darkness. There's nowhere to grapple to. Too many parents. He ends up like sneaking onto her roof (laughs) and being grabbed by her, her, her plants. Uh, but in the end, it turns out that this husband and his boys are just pod people that she's growing. And it's this messed up kind of critique on the American dream from the 50s. It's like, uh, this is Ivy saying, this is what America wants me to be. And this is what I won't be. Somewhere that's green. And, and, and she's really using these cactus people to steal for her. And that's the, the secret plot. It's It's... Um, it's she's trammeling herself. Then the baby starts to emerge. You just hear, "Mommy!" Yeah, just like yeah. And it's the fact that the it's not just that they're pod people. It's that this is a cycle. She's essentially creating just one 
like person over and over and the babies become the children and then the children become the husband Whoa. and then the husband becomes this like cactus man thing and like that's the bit that was really weird to me it's like okay the pod people's weird why are you like being the parents to them and then they like just they assume the role of your husband this is weird this is weird pamela why why and what what sharon's cracking up hold on what's it about <laughs> just just the idea that when you have no more use for your husband he becomes a cactus man who goes out and steals things <laughs> it's the yeah, circle that, I, I, I of life that could be funny actually oh dear <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, they, she ends up um, es- uh, escaping. I think she flies away on a plane and looks through a photo album of... Uh, is it just um, the, her pre- previous pretend life? or? Um, well, she did. The, the uh, genetic material that she obtained to create the family does come from somebody. Mm. So I assumed that the photo album was of them. Right. Well, she cries, which illustrates that there is actually a yearning in Ivy to do something like that, which makes her a more complex character. And they leave it at that. Um, if you look carefully too, you can see a picture of Harley in there as well. Like he's reminiscing nice. about her time with her as well, yeah. which is kind of nice. Again, I, I feel like uh, the fact that uh, Ivy in the Harley Quinn cartoon is now basically kind of a, a, an eco warrior and really doesn't consider herself to be a villain at all, mm-hmm. and is just the most grown up person in the room, speaks volumes mm-hmm. about her, the way that the uh, creators are now uh, seeing her crusade. Mm. There is also an element of Ivy relating better to plants because they don't talk back and yeah. they're not unpredictable. But she's also incredibly lonely. Yeah. Um, because th- they don't talk back and they're not unpredictable. Mommy. No. It, it isn't possible. Mommy? Mommy? I was a doctor in Arkham. She said she wanted to reform. I trusted her. Let her get too close. One little kiss, and dear Stephen was my slave. He was useful in signing my release papers and for supplying certain raw materials for my experiments. But the marriage was, well, a fake. And these mutations? Our children, Batman. Plant-based life forms enhanced with Stephen's DNA. They're not truly human. In fact, their lifespans are somewhat like certain rare flowers that blossom and die in a few days. I see. At first, it looks like a child. Then it resembles Dr. Carlyle. And in its final phase... In its final phase, before it burns itself out, the creature becomes my willing enforcer and bodyguard. Thief and kidnapper is more like it. It costs money to raise a family. You haven't changed a bit. Yes, I have. I meant it when I said I wanted a family that loves me. I just wanted it on my terms. Lady... You're nuts. Well, that's your opinion. Probably the last one you'll ever have, too. Kids? That water I fed them contained a superactive growth formula. True, it cuts their lifespan down to just a few minutes, but that's more time than you've got. 
I'm just going to give a nod to another character who was a favorite of mine. I'd never seen this episode. A lot of these that we were watching, I'd never seen. Um, and it's Roxy Rocket. And this yeah. very much fits in with oh, the whole yes. the way women are positioned in this show. It's a girl who's like a fun-loving adrenaline freak who wears like rocketeer, like um, 1940s garb, gets onto this enormous phallic rocket and commits mid-air jewelry heists on blimps. And at the end, like she's rocketing towards some cliffs and Batman's hanging on via a, ba- a, a grapnel gun. And she's kind of riding the rocket and spun around. And he's like, sort of, you know, take this thing down. And she's like, no, Batman, we're going to smash into a mountain together. Oh, yeah, baby. And she is, well. Better make you move. Oh, baby, you're the best. The ultimate thrill, the final stunt. Me and you. Yeah. Yeah. She's very liberated, and it's uh, an extremely fun episode, and she's an extremely fun character who could definitely be rehabilitated. And at the end, Batman just kind of claps her in irons and sends her off with the police, and she's like, oh, I thought we had something. And he's like, no, we didn't have anything. Credits, boom. I'm like, Batman, you fucking sourpuss. (laughs) You could have had the end of Red Line right there. (laughs) Seriously. It's an orgasmic episode. I think if I remember right, she shows up in a, briefly in an episode of the Superman animated series. Okay. Uh, oh, but you say briefly. That makes me sad. Well, yeah, yeah but, but but you'll you'll see. Well, it makes sense when you see it. But, I mean, yeah, she has kind of taken her own, um, well, the phallic nature of the rocket and the fact that it frees her to do all kinds of things is uh, not uh, subtle. <laughs> subtle as a brick (laughs) but she also there's this weird bit in the episode where she like clonks two women with a a giant spanner and throws them into the back of a plane and then like sets the plane to take off and you've got these four bare legs kind of flapping around like a Cthulhu monster in the back seat of the plane (laughs) and she was absolutely fine with sending them to their deaths so it's uh, there there are some characters in this who are kind of a little bit psychotic as well as being um, uh, great fun Yeah. Mm. Speaking of, uh, we haven't actually mentioned Robin much. Uh, I've put him on uh, House and Garden. Um, there's actually a couple of Robins in this. You've got uh, Dick Grayson's Robin, who's kind of a college student. And the way he's positioned in the series, if you watch, watch it chronologically, he's there and then he's off in college. And then he's there and he's sort of not there. And he's sort of in and out, but not always it, by Batman's side. Yeah, yeah he's not a. Uh, that's what I find interesting is that he's not the full time partner to Batman. He's, yeah. uh, he, if Batman needs an extra pair of hands, he'll. He'll he'll mm. ask Robin to help. You know, mm. it's not like it's like it's always got to be Batman and Robin together. You know, mm. I, and I and I actually kind of like that. It kind of lends itself well to the to the nature of the series a little bit. Yeah, it's it's encouraging to see that Dick has been allowed to just go out there and live his life, which is unfortunate when you get to the episode which shows how he became Nightwing because it shows that Batman is basically like, no, no, no girls, Dick, you need to be out here costume fighting with me. And He's also really mean to a, a, a criminal right in front of his family and Robin's like, mm. you are just being an asshole. And yeah. I, this, Batman needs to be told this more to keep him in check. Mm. Agreed. And I, I think that what's what's infuriating about when you see uh, Dick being Robin and he's 
really capable. You see that he's been doing this for years and he may not be as involved now, but he's still there, is that there are times when it comes across that Bruce is really t- doing this because he is a control freak. He can't let go. And the worst episode of that is the one where he is blind. Penguin has oh, a bomb yeah. that can destroy, or like some sort of weapon that can destroy the city. And Dick is even there in the episode. It's like, nope, gonna make this get this like this experimental I- tech that's a bit ropey, and I'll go out. It's like Bruce, I could go out right now. Nope, it'll be me. Barbara could go out as well. Like, that episode needed to be Bruce gets told, stay there. Mm. Gets chained Mm. up by Alfred. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm going out to save the city. Okay, Boomer, sit the hell down. But, like, the the point of the episode could have been, see, kids, if you keep pushing when you actually need to rest, you actually end up making things worse for yourself. But the end result is, well done, Batman. He did it, even though he was blind. Mm. And his sight comes back, too. (laughs) Yeah. See, you don't need to to rest or do anything else, uh, you know, to, to, to do with uh, medical stuff. Just be Batman and then, then <laughs> you'll, you'll win. Be fine. He's just very no. good at preparing. Yes. I did mention about- Alfred there. This, again, like I said uh, at the beginning, saying this might be the definitive version of Alfred is some choice words when so many other great ones exist. He's one of the almost always cast well characters. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they, I mean, he just he just, he brings that droll British wit. To uh, the uh, uh, the just the, 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 the little hint of levity when, especially when things or, and also in Mask of the Phantasm, just a yeah. fatherly nature mm. to him. Like, oh, it's like, I'm so proud of you, you know. And, that, and I just, I love that. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, he, and also just when he gets frustrated with them too, like I wiped your bottom, I bloody well ought to know you, <laughs> sir. You know, just I'd love that. It just, it just, it's he's such a great character. He's a safety valve, effectively. You take Alfred away, and I think um, uh, there's a reason why Bruce in Batman Beyond, as far as I know him, is a bitter, miserable old man who can't really be Batman anymore either because Alfred's gone. He's just He doesn't have that thing that keeps him in check anymore. But that's kind of the thing. Whenever Alfred turns up and Bruce is in a pickle, he's either going to be extremely droll and acerbic and kind of lighten the mood for us, or he's going to say something quite profound or incisive and and just like that sort of english gentleman thing that get, that goes on there he's a very key part of uh, bruce and batman's world and uh, uh you need only look at the first couple of episodes where it was a different voice actor uh to see the the alchemy at work when they got the right voice and the right mm. attitude on alfred back but not for long i guess it seems that clayface is losing his integrity I wasn't aware that he ever had any to begin with. Get turned up to death! How long has it been? Ten years? Twelve? All that and another lifetime. She and her father were very fond of you. I was a different person then. Yes, intense, driven, moody. She'd never recognize you now. Looks like a slow night, Alfred. When I finish patrolling this area, I'm heading home. Excellent timing, Master Bruce. I've just taken dinner out of the oven. Looks like trouble at Tarnower Financial, Alfred. I won't be home early after all. (sighs) Please don't take this the wrong way, sir, but your goose is cooked. I fixed your supper. It's upstairs in the oven. What would we do without you, Alfred? I shudder to think. They even have a episode where they go to 
the UK and they lean all in on the Britishness of Alfred, oh, yeah. which is great. Although I will always hold it against this uh, series, or at least the new adventures of Batman and Robin, that when Batman, fi- not Batman, Alfred finally has a chance to lay down, be in a bath, enjoy himself. He asks for some of those delightful tea cookies. And Alfred, they're biscuits. Yes, we all yeah. know they're biscuits. Why, yeah. what, what a tea I'm cookies. American. I'm the Amer- only American in this group uh, doing this podcast, and even I know that. I mean, uh, t- tea cookies to us would be like some American thing that actually squashes tea leaves into cookies. It sounds revolting. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., that's the Alfred voice actor. Um, but we can also mention the other Robin, which is, uh, it's Tim Drake, because Tim Drake was the Robin at the time in the 90s. But they incorporated a lot of Jason Todd, including his kind of uh, scrappy background, um, into this version of Robin. a little bit. Yeah. Mm. He's, he's kind of a, a, a composite. And especially what actually ends up happening to him in the Batman Beyond Return of the Joker movie. It's, it's uh. actually really sad when you see every version of this Tim Drake Robin every episode he's in you know what a tragic end he's headed towards Mm. I I wish they actually hadn't done that yeah, I kind of wish they had too. I mean, heck, Mark Hamill even went on record saying that you know what the Joker did to him was too far even for how he felt the Joker should be in this universe which speaks volumes I do like that there's a really good episode in one of the other DCAU series where Tim shows up and it's in I think the second season of the Superman show where Tim gets like he contacts Superman because Bruce has gone missing but because Gotham needs Batman to show up he actually asks could you fill his shoes for him and it's a great episode because it allows Tim to actually work with someone who doesn't mind cracking a smile once in a while nice. even though that really weirds out the people around that it's like why is he smiling why is he smiling yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I love that episode too and one of my favorite gags was I was like well, it's like uh, t- Tim says well, by the way uh, how, how is it you do Bruce's voice so well and uh, then you hear Bruce's voice say precise muscle control and then then you hear Tim Drake's voice and he says also I have a really good ear and then Tim just looks at him and he's like don't do that again (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the Superman show I've only ever seen a smattering of it and this is it's actually been really great watching one episode a day and being able to talk about it that this is the way to watch them frankly because I feel like after a while of binging them for weeks uh, weeks on end multiple episodes a day it's going to kind of get tired But uh, it's episodic television. It's not hmm. really designed to be binged because yeah. then the formulas start to show and you get tired of it. It yeah. should be designed to be what you watch with your breakfast as a sort of Saturday morning cartoon. Uh, speaking of uh, the way women were designed in the uh, show, um, they they brought in uh, an artist named Lynn Naylor to design Poison Ivy for those first uh, early appearances and Rene Montoya. So one some of the reasons why they are there is a variety of different women in that those early um, episodes is because they had a woman going. How about this body shape? How about this kind of attitude? Just to differentiate them. And then as it went on, it seemed more. Again, I really really love what Bruce Tim does, and I don't just want to say say point a finger and go. 
dirty old man. <laughs> but and he just loves lovely girls. But so did Frank Frazetta. So did uh, a variety of Renaissance artists um, who who are bewitched by the female form. I can't fault him with that. Um, ulti- and ultimately, other creators have come along and gone. What if Batgirl had more agency and was actually, you know just as great a uh, a character. Uh, Ultimately, this is more just a side effect of watching all of this in order and then jumping forward several seasons of Superman to actually kind of jump, you know, leapfrog over to the uh, uh, animated, the adventures of, of season three and going, hmm, this is a little, a little less... Uh, explorative. Explorative and a little more exploitative. Mm. But uh, yeah... Baby doll, that's one of yours. We've like we've have to save most of yours till last show because yeah. they're the more esoteric, less focused on the classic villains. They are, but that's not necessarily a problem because um, particularly Baby Doll and, and See No Evil, which was my next choice, I've picked them both for a very similar reason, which is to do with the portrayal of one-off. Well, not quite one-off because Baby Doll does come back again, but the the lesser used but highly sympathetic villains. Mm-hmm. And uh, Baby Doll in particular goes a little bit more down the rabbit warren of of uh, cartoon psycho behaviour later on. But in this one, where she's introduced, she is a uh, she is an actress, uh, an adult actress who has a health condition that means she doesn't grow, um, and. As a result, she plays sort of very Shirley Temple, a very Shirley Temple type character and has got stuck in that perception of herself. And the this episode is one where she's the, the her series has been shut down a long time ago and she is trying to make something of her life and failing and in an attempt to recreate some of that camaraderie and and uh, and importance that she felt she had when she was regularly appearing on television she kidnaps the people from the show that she was in the other actors and basically tries to force them at point of dynamite hmm. to film another episode of the show so that she can feel like she has some validation that she has some some purpose again kind of like a twisted version of uh, the gray ghost Yes. Yeah. 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 It's she forces her similar, comeback. Yeah, and that that is yeah. sort of it does echo that sense of of once upon a time we had this. Let's try and recapture that. Um, and and she has a very if the grey ghost has kind of a thirties feel to him, she has kind of like a forties early fifties feel 50s, to her. Yeah, a little, little bit of of sort of that I love Lucy type uh-huh. era. Um, but I, I what you're talking about, Willis? But for the honeymooners, well, yeah. Um, but um, but I just I really appreciate the way that she's she's shown to be like her her motivations, while her behaviour and the way she acts it out is obviously unacceptable. The the motivations behind the way she's feeling are completely valid, and one of the ways that Batman deals with it is to validate her. Mm. The, there's an, a follow-up episode called Love is a Croc where she, uh, again, acts like kind of like um, Peter Dinklage in The Station Agent. Mm. She has a lot of dignity and people take cheap shots at her. And she's like, I'm an adult woman trapped in this uh, diminutive body. And she kind of ends up hooking up with Killer Croc and she talks to him like a woman. They end up um, kind of becoming Bonnie and Clyde. And the, the, the episode immediately goes downhill when she starts going into her Shirley Temple mode. She's like, oh, you're going to come with me, Killer 
Kiwa Quack. And then Croc's like, is this a thing you're doing? Because I'm not into it. <laughs> and like the moment that she starts doing that, Croc is like looking for the door. And Croc has been shown over and over again to be a selfish asshole with no dimensionality across all these episodes. He keeps screwing over people who offer him help. So this could have been an episode whereby two adults kind of find a, a, a middle ground. That's the one where Batman ends up beating up Killer Croc and Batgirl's like, oh, I guess I'll save <laughs> we the city. We trying to stop the nuclear explosion. And this is where not being explorative and not deciding to go, let's look at this mm. and hone in, especially in the later episodes, becomes annoying because mm. you've yeah. got this richness there and then it gets kind of tossed out the window for Looney Tunes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Another thing about Baby Doll, though, I, I, I also thought it was a bit of a commentary on like how child actresses will be put into like certain shit sitcoms like mm. on like the Disney Channel or something like that are expected to Mickey just Mouse have Club. this for lack of a better term contractual purity about them mm. and they have to Cyrus. force to play that role off camera as well as on camera yeah. and then mm. and then as soon as they do something they decide to break out of that and do something like what some other people would see as unseemly. Mm. Suddenly, they suddenly it's like like they, they just we held them to this 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 high moral standard. Of, oh, they're such a sweetheart, and then they're lashing out. You know, kind of like how what Miley Cyrus did. You know, mm. you know, it and creates, suddenly and suddenly there's a problem. Yeah, it creates yeah. a distortion um, of of how that person's viewed, and because they are seen as public property because they're in TV shows and everybody gets to watch them effectively grow up, mm. they are they end up introjecting that uh, that distortion that everybody else sees them through into how they see themselves mm. and it can really cause some um, problems. It it's- would have made more sense if uh, Baby Doll had just tried to be an adult the whole way through and then when things were taken away from her in Love as a Croc, mm. then the Baby Doll persona comes out and they're kind of, what, then I'm going to take it all back. Yeah. Like that was her Mr. Hyde. Yeah, but it feels mm. like it's almost the other way around, that the adult is who she really is and when she's yeah. trying to live a real life, that's who she is and that's how she sees herself and other people keep infantilizing her exactly at the end of the 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 first baby doll episode she goes through a a funhouse um hall of mirrors and the mirrors are all distorted but she sees herself as an adult in those mirrors Mm. and specifically an adult of average height yes um and the uh the it's it's when she gets thrown into a situation where her almost like her automatic defenses have to come up. She falls back on old habits, mm. and that's when the, the the baby doll persona comes through. Silly Mr. Batman's can't catch me. Don't run away. I know you're scared, confused. I can help you. Liar, liar, cape on fire. Game's over, Mr. Batman. <laughs> I win. <gasps> no fair! Look. That's me in there. The real me. There I am. But it's not really real, is it? just made up and pretend like my family and my life and everything else. Why couldn't you just let me make believe?
also worthy of note uh, around this time in uh, season three. There, there are some gems. I still, uh, Mad Love is still excellent, even if it does have a disappointing, my put-in ending when Harley comes back to Joker. Um, but that was notable because it was a, an adaptation of a comic that was done in the animated series style in between seasons two and three. They adapted the comic. Mm. Which was yeah. neat. That, that comic actually also provides an explanation for where Grace is, uh, you know, and when, to bring things back briefly to Two Face. Really? Uh, oh, right. Yeah, like where, where mm. they, where like you know, they, where Grace tried to be there and support for, or be supportive of him as he tries to recover from, you know, and everything. But eventually, he went too far at one point, and then she, she was like, "Okay, I'm done," and leaves town. Actually, there's uh, a really, really good adaptation of this uh, that effectively became the uh, mad love for, I suppose, adults, because I wouldn't want to show this to kids. Stephen Sedgwick's Harleen. Has anyone uh, read that? Uh, I've no, seen pages of that. And yeah. that I want to read the full version of it, but his art I, style, I, the subject matter, and just the execution of it is very raw. Yeah. It's uh, effectively Harleen as a psychologist at Arkham going through a lot of frustrating um, shit and meeting a Joker who is positioned like Bowie. That's how he's been significantly drawn. And um, the challenge was to make it so that because she was losing sleep all the time, having nightmares, her barriers are falling away and allow him into her mind. Um, Stephen Sedgwick has uh, created Sunstone, which is my favorite adult comic by far. I love his art style. Not exactly diverse in terms of body types. He draws the same kind of gorgeous women as Bruce Timm, just mm. with more detail. Um, and gorgeous men. Everyone in his comics are gorgeous. Uh, but effectively, this is just three issues long, but they're bumper-sized issues, so it feels like a full-on book. Uh, it's it's effectively mad love, but from a more modern sensibility. And Quin I, I think this is maybe the, my second favorite version of Harley, uh, even including the uh, animated series after Margot Robbie, specifically in Birds of Prey. A really good Robin episode is... Uh, from around this time, um, Growing Pains, where uh, he meets uh, oh. a little girl who's being chased by Clayface. I won't actually spoil the end of it because that one is really worth watching cold. Mm. But um, yeah, that's heartbreaking. That, that episode hit me harder now that I'm an uncle, honestly. Yeah. yeah. And Clayface is a great uh, antagonist for this because of many reasons. The animation Ron quality Ron Pelman was what I was building to, absolutely. But uh, I love the animation in any time that he appears. They do so much to make it so fluid, but nevertheless carries such a weight to it that makes him terrifying. Yeah. Because for the longest while, Clayface is pretty much the most supernatural opponent that Batman mm. faces. Once Rachel Ghoul comes into the picture, that expands a bit, and that's mm -hmm. kind of like the first taste of it proper. But Clayface is just like a cut above like what he has to deal with. Another great Batgirl episode, I suppose, because the whole thing takes place inside her mind is um, over the edge where Batgirl dies. And the, the whole thing is 
uh, a hallucination brought on by the fear gas. It's, a, again, a, a really intense, incredibly disastrous episode as uh, um, Gordon's out for blood because as far as Barbara's sleeping brain goes. Effectively, Batman is, is bringing young people into this particular street war where people actually die. So the risk of her dying is high. And she's terrified that her father will react incredibly negatively. So I think the while the episode itself doesn't have that much of a foot in reality, when she finally talks to Jim and seems oh. about ready to, to tell him you know, the secret, he says, you don't need to tell me anything in a way that effectively says, look, I can't know you're doing this out loud or I'm going to have to try to stop you, but I trust you, which is a wonderful sentiment to end on. Mm. Mm. Which is notable is more than Batman has offered her to this point. Yes. Mm. She needs that level of validation. Mm. Mm. Um, Scarecrow, in, he goes through the most design yeah. iterations because his first episode, he it's quite limp. He basically comes across as Sideshow Bob in both like his <laughs> voice and everything like that. It's the hair. He's not played by Kelsey Grammer, which is impressive. Mm. <laughs> and I, I also thought it was weird that the episode ends with Batman just laying out a series of rakes and just letting Scarecrow do his <laughs> thing. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, yeah. then the middle iteration is better. It's sort of a refinement that means that he's still got this sort of red jumpsuit. He looks like the straw man, but he's got a sort of mm. jagged mouth. It looks great. And then in the new adventures, holy shit. Is that his only appearance? Yeah. Is this scarecrow like looking like an old scarecrow, but terrifying and gaunt and black? Even having a little bit of a noose around the neck, which yeah. kind of freaked me out. He doesn't talk either in this, does he? Well, he does, but he does it very like infrequently, and he has such a soft-spoken voice, and it's just not much slam. It's nothing, and Yikes. he keeps that. And just in the Barbara episode, he doesn't talk, and I think that's why it works well because this whole thing is brought on by his fear gas. But he essentially assumes the role of the Grim Reaper in that. Just yeah. in like the not just in the fact that in her in her head, this whole series of events was that he was the cause of her death, but that he that it this is the death of everything around her mm. that she fears. Yeah, it's the it's effectively the end of Batman. Mm. The end of Batman as a concept of being able to to keep this bright line in Gotham, and mm. um, yeah, the, the, it. I, I think I feel like her not getting hit with fear gas during the flashback when it happens some like about halfway through. It's is, a little cheap. It's a little bit of a cheat because like if you show her getting hit with the fear gas and then falling off the roof, you're like, oh, I get it. But they were kind of it like the Sigeko just whacks her with a stick. But if you don't get that little clue. I don't know. It's it's um it's it's a great Stick was episode. Coated in fear gas. But it's it the best aspect of it comes at the end with Jim's reaction. And again, Jim Gordon is absolutely spot on in terms of an uh, a softly spoken but assertive man in that particular job. It's it's I can't believe Pat Hingle had been Gordon twice before and was Gordon twice afterwards with this droopy dog Batman over here. Who who's coming into our factory then? Eckhart, sir. Oh my God! <laughs> Wait, Bob Hastings, his his performance as Gordon too. Mm. It just it it brings like a, just a, a 
just the warmth he exudes with that performance and everything. It just, it it's really just great. It's like he's like it's it's like he's a father to his men and women on the force, but mm. he also just tries to be like a really good friend to Batman as well. Although I also really like that, particularly in Mask of the Phantasm, he insists that Batman doesn't kill anybody, mm. and I mm. like that he vouches for Batman and he even says, "Hey, if you want him, I'm not having any part of it." Yeah. Go after him yourself. And I love the scene in the Christmas episode, just after all the other stories, which is just the New Year's tradition that Gordon and Batman swear, which is to survival. And they have a coffee, which, to be honest, was probably the best way any of us could have closed out last year. So <laughs> here's hoping yeah, we yeah. get to do that next mm. year. Riddler in this ah. acts basically like a bad dungeon master in DMT. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, 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 you have to solve these riddles, otherwise it's not going to be interesting. And Batman's like, I've worked it out already. No, 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 just solve, the, just take your time. I've made, put a lot of effort into this. <laughs> <sighs> okay. And then, like, it's, I think ultimately Riddler needs a, a, a hobby. A hobby, yeah. <laughs> Well, Riddler can come off like the biggest right, yeah. asshole of most Batman uh, villains because he's so self-interested. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, but so self-interested, but in kind of a look, you see, because I am clever. And it's like, yeah, we we know. Yeah, okay. How's that working out for yeah. you? Okay, so now collect my trophies. <laughs> so two more episodes, both Sharon's picks. Okay. Right. See so, no evil. See no evil. Now this again, as with Baby Doll, the appeal for this one for me is the is the sympathetic villain kind of sympathetic he's a bit less sympathetic than um, the baby doll um, but the uh, the shape of it is very similar to how uh, the Sandman story played out in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 3 no just Three. Spider-Man, Spider-Man three. Um, it was not amazing. It was not amazing, Spider-Man. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So the he's basically a guy who is separated from the mother of his child and has stolen an invisibility uh, suit in order to try and get close to her again. And it's it the way it's being played out, when he goes to see his daughter, he remains invisible and she thinks he's some kind of imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously nobody else can see him. And the again, the, the appeal for, for me in this one is the way Batman approaches him as a villain. That he is, he, he kind of tries to draw the distinction between the behavior is what is bad. You fundamentally are not a bad person. Be better, do better. There are other ways that you can reconnect with your child without having to do this, which is scaring and hurting people. And I think having that as, as something that Batman keeps coming back to is really valuable because he's, it's, he's not just a bright line for the good people of Gotham. He is also a bright line for the bad people of Gotham. He, he gives them a chance at and a, um, a reflection of the possibility of redemption rather than simply punishment and 
we're going to lock you up and throw away the key. Mm. So that I think is is kind of a, a really neat thing for them to to go through with that episode. It also of note is the fact that the actress playing the little girl oh, is yeah. Elizabeth Moss, most recently seen in that. The Invisible Man, which is really really weird. <laughs> I saw that on Twitter and I was like, my mind just blown. <laughs> what an odd, like, sort of casting trope to be fulfilling. But hey, more power to her. Absolutely, mm. yeah. She's turning into a, a mainstay for a really good psychological horror. Mm. Mm. Oh, yes. <clears throat> okay, so POV. Why uh, do you love this right. one? This is one of the few that actually disengaged me when I was a kid, Absolutely. and I still haven't and particularly you, you warmed had to it. Difficulty engaging with it, and to be fair, the reason that I like, even though this I like one, Bullock and Montoya, I wish this was like a double act of yeah. those two together trying to solve a case, and that one's an asshole, the other one's a good cop. Absolutely, and I completely understand the reason that I like this one is not as a character piece because there is very little mm. characterization going on. It's, it's Rashomon to do with the structure. Yes, it's a, it's a take on the structure of Rashomon. You have a. a, a Sting that has been arranged by the Gotham PD to bring down a crime ring. Montoya, Bullock and a rookie called Wilkes are supposed to be meeting at the warehouse so that they can catch these guys in the act and take them down. But it goes wrong. And the the opening of the story is you you kind of see the shit hit the fan and, and the, the warehouse catches fire and it all goes horribly. And then the three of the rest of the, the episode is the three of them being interrogated and the, uh, who I'm assuming is an internal affairs agent who's been sent to, to get to the bottom of this mm. is uh, threatening their jobs, threatening their badges uh, and, and trying to get out of them what exactly has happened. And you get, all three of them tell their version of events and hence the title you get a slightly different take on what's gone down and the idea is that they then have to piece together exactly what has really happened and how they're going to move forward and and specifically that these three have to clear their names um I, I, one of the things that I do like about it is that when the interrogation begins, it becomes apparent that this guy who's interviewing them, as far as he's concerned, he thinks they're all crooked. He's, his t- his uh, approach to this is um, this this couldn't have gone quite so badly unless you did it on purpose. He thinks they're all on the take. And it, it's actually a, a characterization of Gordon because he's there almost kind of just to witness the whole thing. He doesn't really get involved, but he will not let this interviewer push the idea that these three are corrupt. He is constantly jumping in and saying, no, that's um, they have my full confidence. Uh, there's more to it than that. You, you can't just write it off as these officers are corrupt. Um, I like it for the fact that it's the, the structure of it and the, the um, perspective of the stories, the, the fact that the animation is... It's, slight, it's not so much the animation is different, but like the colour themes seem different for each one. Or muted. Um, yeah, exactly. There's, um, yeah. in particular, when you get Wilkes' story in the middle, and Wilkes is played by Robbie Benson, who was the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. Hmm. Which I never realised yeah. that. 
Um, but he was he's, Prince Valiant. <clears throat> yeah, he was Prince Valiant as well. Yeah, um, but his his perspective on the story is actually really funny because he's he's the, he's a fanboy. He's a Batman fanboy, and but when Batman turns up, he's like, and then he just he arrived and uh, sparks Laser were flying beams came out, out of his hands. <laughs> but but the, in the animation, we can see no, it's just his taser and <laughs> um, and things like that. But the the way Wilkes is seeing it as is this is all really impressive for him and he's new to the force as well so he's not worked with Batman before um, and then when we see Bullock's version of events he says that there's a, there's a moment where he's trying to sneak up on the uh, the criminals and he says there was a noise that alerted them to the fact that I was there it must have been Batman he's kind of trying to blame everything on Batman what actually happened was he tripped over a tin of paint and made a big loud crash, but he can't admit that. Um, and it's actually Montoya's version of events that is probably closest to what actually happened. Surprise me. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then the end of it is she figures out a crucial clue and then works with Batman in order to solve the whole thing. Mm. Everybody gets their badges back, and mainly because when she is praised for uh, turning things around and catching the bad guys, her response is, no, 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 we, we all did this. This was a team effort and I'm sat there thinking no Bullock no. was an idiot Wilkes was useless you did this woman claim the damn credit she's the one good apple Amen. I'm, like, I'm with you on that mm. wait a minute who wanted their badge back Eckert, sir. <laughs> oh my <laughs> god it is also <laughs> noteworthy that that was episode 7 of this series that they went for a Rashomon style uh, police procedural for their 7th episode and it's it's kind of Batman light. Like, it's That's never confidence. from his perspective. That is confidence that what they've got is a vast slate of very intricate storytelling. And speaking yeah. of the storytelling and the slate, I urge you folks, when you go back and watch them, especially if you can find them in HD, I think they're streaming on HBO Max, the Blu-ray box set is, I would consider, essential if you're a fan of animation. Um, uh, I recently got the Blu-ray box set and re-watching some of these episodes in HD when I'd been using my DVDs for mm -hmm. the community we watched for the longest time. My, my jaw dropped. Oh, yeah. I, oh. Was, I was amazed. It's it amazing. Great. But next time when you're watching them, folks, pay particular attention to the title cards. Every single one of these is a little work of art. I believe they're uh, uh, created by Eric Radomski, one of the uh, producers, uh, and uh, also one of the artists. There's uh, Sharon was just looking at a, at a wiki while we were going along, and there is a collection of all of them right there mm. in one place. They're astonishing. That you could have yeah. an art gallery with just these, uh, and they're also, fascinating. Also, what's really great and typifies this Art Decoist style of the show is the fact that it was illustrated on black construction paper. Yeah. It was, mm. uh, um, there, there was a lot of complaints uh, when it first started being produced. There was actual talk of the legal level of darkness in, a, in an animated show, and that they were <laughs> skirting very close to that point. Um, but the dark universe could never fly back then because people were watching it on old CRT TVs that couldn't really do black levels so it's possible that it would have looked terrible but I only ever remember it looking great me too mm. and just and unlike everything else that was out at that point and it has retained that level of there's um, gargoyles obviously like sort of drew a lot of inspiration from that and, and, and took it in a different much more uh, sort of like Kids, here are some solid morals for you to learn and grow up with direction, which I appreciate. Mm. I've never been a massive fan of Gargoyles, but I can see where this has fed into that. 
Mm. Yeah. I do miss those uh, those title cards in the new adventures of Batman mm, because it too. just goes from the opening title sequence and by the way, what an opening title oh, sequence. Yeah. Just the confidence where they said, We don't need to put up the title for this, just Batman. That's yeah. the image of Batman is alone for you to know what this series is. Yeah. And but in the new adventures, just the absence of that. And it just flows into it with one exception of Joker's millions where they actually have the title play across like the teleprompter on the like stocks that he's robbing. Mm-hmm. It, it, I miss that level of sort of fun that they had with the uh, titles and artwork and what have you with that. I think that's it because we've now got to get Kevin to work. So, yeah. um, <laughs> but that's fine. I, we were just about to uh, kind of like hit a point of exhaustion anyway, and this has been a really, really great show. Thank Kevin. Thank you um, very, very much for um, my pleasure. Being conscientious. I mean, this, of- like I said, this is like my formative version of Batman growing up. So it was great to just talk about it with you guys, about, uh, and also just do another show with you guys. I love doing this. <laughs> it's a real buzz. Oh, one final shout out to Clock King, this guy who's like, uh, you know, obsessed with the time. And it's like, well, this can't really work that much as a villain. He made me late. Yeah. But like the second time I think he turns up, he has an ability to freeze time. And it's terrifying as an ability. (laughs) The only reason that like Batman shouldn't be able to deal with this. This is a flash problem. Mm. But the only reason that um, uh, he like Batman wins in the end is because he hasn't realized how incredibly powerful this ability is. And his sites the clock king sites were quite low in terms of what he actually wanted uh, but uh, yeah that episode just the moment where he walks up to the office door of the man he hates mm. and he just calmly n- repeatedly knocks on his door in the stop time and then you cut to the man's office and it's just this <laughs> and it's yeah he's an agent mm. definitely you were right you know not bringing me along He knew I'd take it too personally. It wasn't that, Robin. It wasn't that at all. Zuko's taken so much, caused you so much pain. I couldn't stand the thought that he might take you, too. Come on, partner. It's been a long night. So, so yeah, I, honestly, that we could go on and on and on. There is so much here. It is such a rich trove. And even now, what we're thirty years on, it's it's still this good. It um, holds up. And I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing how they proceeded because I have there's a whole huge swathes of Justice League before Unlimited that I haven't seen. Um, most of Superman I haven't seen. All of Bat- well, most of Batman Beyond I haven't seen. So yeah, this is you can expect us back in this particular uh, universe again sometime soon. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that then. In the meantime, where can folks find your best stuff? We will start with Kevin. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. I'm a Let's Player of sorts, although I don't really have any ongoing projects at the moment because my job schedule's been running me ragged. But, but, uh, but I although I did recently crank out a Let's Play of Super Mario Land, which is mm. coming, which is coming out soon, which is one of my favorite Game Boy games. Oh, nice! And uh, mm. and uh, but I do try to put out like a first impressions video of a game from my Steam back catalog every Saturday. So 
uh, at least I have some content. But yeah, youtube.com slash golden tales geek. That's my username. Based on Golden Sun and Tales of Symphonia? Yep. Or the Golden series and the Tales series. Tales of Symphonia particularly because that was the game that got me into said series. Awesome. That that just makes it easier for folks to remember. Okay, so Toby... If you follow and enjoy Alex's other work, New Century, then yeah, it's it's obscure, but I keep telling people about it. But if you follow and enjoy that, then I urge you to check out Through the Window, which is a podcast that Greg uh, Downing and I uh, do, and we go through all of the books. We've finished Cartographer's Handbook. I've just listened to the edit of that, and we're putting out the finale imminently, and we recorded last night the first episode for arlington and that went great you've got a good one coming up and uh i've read the first chapter of alex's newest book and our reactions to that when we get to that i can already tell are gonna be energetic (laughs) and apart from that one other thing that should be coming up in the near future when i'm not podcasting i'm a researcher looking into stop motion animation and recently i wrote a review for the ray harryhausen titan of cinema exhibit that's Mm -hmm. being held in edinburgh and they have this really cool virtual exhibition you can do which has a series of films and just information and beautiful images on there and i wrote that for the fantasy slash animation blog which is this blog run by a bunch of obsessive animation academics like myself and we it just talks about the intersection between fantasy and animation so that will i i'm not sure when that's coming up but check that website it's got great stuff anyway and you can see my stuff go on there soon here's a little clip from a recent episode of through the window Alex does what he always fucking does, and he gives us a character who then meets another character that we know, and they go, hi, mum, or hi, dad, and it's just like, what? What? And this time, it's the like, one of the biggest headfucks ever, and we're only pages in. Yes, We are yes. pages it's, in. It starts and, as it means to go on, yeah. yes. Honestly, I forget that it's my work they're talking about when I listen to these guys. Their enthusiasm is just so infectious. Through the wind door. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. And we give a shout out to our top tier sponsors every week. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Sabard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, I was going to do this in a Joker voice, but I didn't want to give you all nightmares. So if you want me to do your voice in a Joker fashion, send me a stamped addressed envelope full of cash. Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G., Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns.
And we will be back next week with the beginning of our Rage Cage season, charting the brief period of about a year and a half between 1996 and 1997 when Nicolas Cage was a big-budget blockbuster action hero. So that's The Rock, Con Air and Face Off. See you for those. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Mm -hmm. Keep cooking like that, you'll have me looking like Harvey Bullock. Dinner wasn't the only reason I wanted to see you tonight. Oh? Dad, have a seat. Uh-oh. This is important. It won't be easy for you to hear, but it's about a job I took on recently. Barbara, please. Sweetheart, you're capable of making your own decisions. You don't need me to approve or even acknowledge them. And in this case, I can't. All you need to know is I love you. All of you. And that is all I have to say on the subject. And we're going to leave you with the bewitching music of Shirley Walker. Sadly departed, dearly missed, insanely talented. What follows is a nearly 10-minute medley of The Penguin, The Joker and Poison Ivy. 